This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, October 26th. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but... Uh, Fear not, he will be back on Monday, and until then, we're going to have fun that we might not otherwise if if Matt was here. Is that right, Terry? We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a lot of things we're doing now, we, we would do if he was here. It's still up in the air, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I imagine he's doing, other than having a lot of fun in, in Costa Rica, I think he's howling at the moon. Why? Because today is Howl at the Moon Day. Does anybody want to give us their best howl at the moon right now? Reed? Ow! Wow. That was very calming. Thank you for that. Just because my last name's Wolfley. Oh, oh, that's right. All right, next hour, we'll see if we can get Sadie to howl at the moon. Today is also Pumpkin Day. Terry, do you like you some pumpkin pie? Sure, Thanksgiving. See, to me, pumpkin pie would be good any time of the year. I, I'm a little sore that, you know, turkey and pumpkin pie are only limited to Thanksgiving for the most part. I'm more – it's time and place. It oh. happens at Thanksgiving. That's when you have it. You don't have it in the – I mean, there's people that will go to the store buy a pumpkin pie in, like, June. You know, you just can't need, do that. You need to get a pumpkin pie blizzard from Dairy Queen. Nah. So good. Uh, you know, it wasn't always called pumpkin. It comes from the Greek word pepon, I believe it's pronounced, or large melon. Hmm. So it's large melon day. Uh, then the French called it pompon or pompon, and then pumpion to the British. And then we are the ones, Americans were the ones to call it pumpkin. I think I like pumpkin the best. We'll stick with pumpkin. I think you're biased. <laughs> that could very well be. <laughs> Anyway, so we'll be talking more about those fun topics throughout the day. We've got uh, some great clips uh, from Fox News, you're saying, right, Terry? Yeah, they had some um, interesting things happen yesterday. We'll talk about it. Well, just looking at some of these, it looks like, you know, the Trump the Trump team is uh, very optimistic. They're trying to be. I think, I think they may be onto something, you know. Maybe they know more than we do. Maybe. That's what they're saying. They're saying what the evidence is showing is not what they think is going to happen. Interesting. So. Okay. And then also, uh, spoiler alert, but it happened yesterday, and if if you didn't watch it, then you probably aren't at this point, but uh, the Cleveland Indians shut out the Chicago Cubs six to nothing in Cleveland. So that's kind of a big deal, especially since the Chicago Cubs are the better team as far as uh, their numbers are concerned. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. But first, we need to toss things over to, to Sadie Nielsen to tell us a little bit more about what's going on around the country. Sadie, what's going on? 
Donald Trump has ended his campaign's high-dollar fundraising operation, effectively cutting off the flow of cash to the Republican Party. According to Trump's national finance chairman, the joint fundraising committee between the GOP and the campaign, Trump Victory, last held a fundraiser on October 19th, the day of the final presidential debate. We've kind of wound down, he told the Washington Post, but the online fundraising continues to be strong. According to Donald Trump, electing Hillary Clinton as president would lead to a third world war because of her plans for dealing with the Syrian civil war. During a Tuesday foreign policy interview, Trump suggested uh, that Clinton would heighten tensions with the nuclear-armed Russia via the Syrian conflict and suggested her calls for a no-fly zone and safe zones would lead to direct conflict with Putin's military. You're going to end up in the World War III over Syria if we listen to Hillary Clinton. You're not fighting Syria anymore. You're fighting Syria, Russia, and Iran, all right? Russia is a nuclear country, but a country where the nukes work, as opposed to other countries that talk. Donald Trump claims that he is not interested in creating a Trump TV network following next month's general election, despite reports suggesting otherwise. Despite his claimed disinterest in such an idea, his campaign has begun airing live stream counter-programming on Facebook, complete with a TV news-like crawl at the bottom of the screen. The video effort is seen as a soft launch of what would become a Trump TV network. And finally... Yes. uh, What are your thoughts on autocorrect, dear Jeff? Oh, man, I had a really bad one the other day. Did you? So you've got to be careful with that. You do. You You really do. It is kind of annoying because instead of, you know, if you were to type something on your computer, it doesn't happen. It's not as much of a culprit as text messaging. Yes. You really got to be careful. Right. So there is a New Zealand professor who successfully submitted a paper on nuclear physics written only using autocorrect to a scientific conference. This is great. University of Canterbury professor Christoph Bartnick said his paper was accepted by the International Conference on Atomic and Nuclear Physics in just three hours after using only words provided by the iOS text creation tool. Uh, The first sentence he wrote using only iOS said atomic physics and I shall not have the same problem with a separate section for a very long, long way. That was what the iOS, iOS text creation co- tool hmm. said for him. So he typed either atomic or nuclear first, and then he used the words after that came up to create a paper that was apparently accepted by this very prestigious scientific conference. Wow. So it goes to show that sometimes you can hmm. use it for the good. Another line from the paper said, The atoms of a better universe will have the right for the same as you are the way we shall have to be a great place for a great time to enjoy the day. You are a wonderful person. To you, great time to take the fun and take a great time and enjoy the great day. You will be wonderful time for your parents and kids. So was somebody else in the room <laughs> that was talking over his shoulder or something? I don't know, but it's like you can see how that's autocorrect, right? Because you type it in and like it just gives you a suggestion. You just keep tapping it. and Yeah. But it was some, accepted by a yeah. scientific conference. Isn't I, that crazy? Wow. Did they read it? Probably not. If yeah. it was accepted in under three hours as yeah. well. So yeah. maybe the study was really about do these people... People read the papers that are submitted to them. That could have been it. Wow. It was a test. The end of the story says Bartnick suspects the conference is not of a high academic caliber and will not attend. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, whenever I'm doing, uh, you know, whenever I'm using Siri and just talking my text, somebody interrupts me like my kid comes in the room or my wife asks me a question. And so my answer to to their, you know, inquiry gets mixed in with my text and yeah, fun that's, stuff. That's a real thing. It is. Yeah. Sadie, 
Great job again. Fun stuff. And uh, we'll be coming back to you uh, during the next hour. Thanks. Wow. Well, we could do a whole segment on text fails, you know, uh, Siri fails, but we won't do that because we have some very interesting fails of another kind. Well, we'll, we'll see if they're fails because they might not be according to Donald Trump's team. Okay, so yesterday was, was it, Kellyanne Conway, she's a spokesperson for the Trump campaign. Right. She went on and as the spokesperson for a campaign, you're going to put a positive spin on things. Sure. Right. So just go uh, clip three there if you could. Internally. You do internal polls? Yes, too? we do. What do, you, what do your polls show? Uh, tighter than that. In, in North, North Carolina? Ca- yes, and we show Hillary Clinton uh, under 50 and usually well under 50 in all the swings. But she, we like and your poll, is he ahead or behind in, in North, North Carolina? In North Carolina, it's, it's closer to tied in it's, North Carolina. And what about Florida? And there's uh, Florida is closer to tied. In Florida and North Carolina and, uh, and about four of the other seven states, four of the other six states, Wolf, we're within the margin of error of Hillary Clinton. I think Donald Trump's going to win the election. He's also ahead in places like Ohio and Iowa internally. These are, place, these are states that Mitt Romney and John McCain both lost to President Obama. Hillary Clinton is nowhere near President Obama's 52, 53, 55 percent margins in some of these so states. So you're convinced he's going to win still? Yes, I'm convinced Two he's weeks going to ago. Win. So their internal polling shows a positive, uh, you know, positive signs for them, and that's why he's in Florida, or at least he was yesterday, and he's been in there. And now their new poll came out today from Bloomberg, showing it's neck and neck, and it's close. Florida's key. If if Trump loses Florida, it's over. You know, she's good because oh, yeah. he came out and asked her, "So who's leading in such and such states?" And she said, "Well, it's closer to tight." Yeah. Well, she's. I mean, she didn't give like specific <laughs> numbers either. She just right. kind of kept it general, but closer to tight. So that's kind of that idea. Then. Now there's criticism. Last night, Hillary Clinton went to an Adele concert. Granted, she went on stage and Adele endorsed her, even though she's not a citizen. She told everyone, vote for this person, not for that guy. Today, Trump's going to be at his new hotel in D.C. So people are like, so it's such an important time. You're going to take a break and run over to your hotel and open it and have a huge grand opening instead of campaigning. And and they're like, oh, no, no, he's he's a, a successful businessman. This is a you know sign that he can do this for our country and be in a – okay, whatever. So he's going to have a press conference. If you remember the last time they had a press conference to announce the hotel, uh, the media showed up because he was going to announce, is pre- does he believe President Obama is a citizen of this country or not? Oh, boy. Right? So that's when they went 30 minutes of him talking about how great this place is. you got to see the you know the woodwork and all this stuff. And at the end he went, oh, yeah, by the way, he's I believe he's born in America and walked <laughs> away. And the media was ticked off because it wasted their time and all this stuff. So is that going to happen today? I don't know. But So he, d- he just doesn't want to put all his eggs in one basket. I guess not, but – so they're opening a hotel. Good for him. Um, and Clinton went on, and uh, Trump called her a phony yesterday. Hillary Clinton accused Donald Trump of seeking to dismantle American democracy. So, you know, the rhetoric is being amped up as we get closer here. Last night, I'm watching – I didn't watch this. I saw it this morning. But on Fox News, there was three different shows, right? You have Bill O'Reilly, you have Sean Hannity, and you have Megyn Kelly. Wow. Right? Those are the shows. Uh Bill O'Reilly had the courage to tell his viewers that undermining our electoral system is not a patriotic thing. You know, so you're you're, you're questioning the validity of the voting system. That may not be the best thing you want to do as a Mm -hmm. candidate for the high office. So that that was kind of a a twist for Bill O'Reilly to kind of go against what Trump's – he's been kind of more on the Trump side. So Hmm. it's kind of – I don't know where he stands at the moment. Sean Hannity offered to pay for a one-way flight to Kenya for the president and his family. Uh, oh. One caveat was that the Obama family could not return, so he'll pay for the trip, but you got to stay in Kenya. 
Does he just not have or enough money? Or no, I think Sean Hannity wants him to leave the country. I think he thinks the country will be better if if Barack Obama and his family are not in the United States anymore. That's sad. So that was that show. Then on Megyn Kelly, she had uh, Newt Gingrich on. He's a spoke. He's you know works for the campaign. He's mm-hmm. on the campaign spokesperson, and he says um, it started out with talking about polling. And in September, you had Hillary Clinton's health issues. She's being dragged into a, you know, 9-11, she was dragged into a van and, you know, she collapsed or didn't, you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, Trump had a surge in the polls at that point because we had this video of Hillary Clinton right, and her health. Right. Is that an issue? And, and then Trump lost that when all those, uh, there's several issues, but then like the videos came out from Access Hollywood and then ah, 10 Accusers mm-hmm. and then Newt Gingrich like accused Megyn Kelly of being preoccupied with sex. And then she said, I'm not. And he said, what about Bill Clinton? And and she said, he's not running for president. And But he was president. But he was president. And then he's going to be in the East Wing because he'll be part of the family. So he'll be in the White House. Is that a concern? And then it just back and forth, back and forth. And um, one of the I didn't get I didn't get that part. But that was the part where people are focusing on because that's where it kind of went off the rails. But before yeah. that, if you play clip six. But your candidate, your candidate loves them and has touted them from the beginning. Talking about the And polls. he's been behind in virtually every one out of, the, out of the last 40 polls that we've seen over the past right. month. That's the reality. Look, if you want to assume the election's over, skip the next two weeks and we can talk about the future. I'm not assuming anything. I'm, I'm, just, I'm asking you whether you believe right. your candidate's behind based on these numbers and what I, it says about the, the down ballot are, races. I, I believe the odds are at least one in three and maybe better than that, that the difference in intensity... And the difference in determination and the degree to which Hillary Clinton is clearly the most corrupt, dishonest person ever nominated by a party all mean that the odds are pretty good she's not going to win. Hmm. So, again, Trump's internal polls are showing one thing. Well, the, as, as Megyn Kelly said, the 40 other, other polls are showing another thing. At some point, he calls Fox News part of the media establishment, which hmm. is something Fox News is always saying we're not. And she's like, really? What are you talking about? And then it, it just sort of – then, then the, 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 the tapes come into it, the accusers, and it turns into this, this other discussion. And uh, the Trump's social media director, Dan Scavino, afterwards said that uh, Newt Gingrich destroyed Megyn Kelly, shown that she's totally biased against Mr. Trump and not very smart. Mr. Trump was, uh, has long known that she's not very smart. He, uh, he'll keep going, saying Kelly made a total fool out of herself tonight, adding, watch what happens to her after this election is over, which is probably she's going to sign a huge contract and sure. be on TV. And I don't know what the future we'll find out what the future mr trump will be that's not a bad deal yeah you know maybe the trump team knows something that we don't and you know during one of the uh, uh debates he did say that he's going to keep people in suspense so he maybe he knows that he's already going to win but he just wants to make it seem like it's going to be a close race could be they closed the interview out with uh play clip seven this is how they ended it and the polls also show that It'll the American the, public is less in interested in the deeds of Hillary Clinton's husband than they are in the deeds of the man who asks us to make him president, Donald Trump. We're going to have to leave it at that. And you can take your anger issues and spend some time working on them, Mr. Speaker. Thanks for being and here. You too, and you too. Wow. <laughs> really tense. She essentially said you need to go to anger management. Yes. Wow. My goodness. So now even Fox News is at least her show is uh you know in this tense relationship with the donald trump campaign wow as we get to the end well 
rip off another chain on your paper chain because we've only got 13 more days yep. until the election. I know Reed's excited. He's giving the two over. thumbs up. No, it yes. It'll just continue. <laughs> It'll just be chaos of a different kind. That's a horse of a different color right there. Anyway, uh, when we come back, we will be speaking with Dr. Corey uh, Stema, who will be telling us more about child care and uh, going over the history of child care and some of the implications that, that, that those have on our future. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier and happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away in beautiful Costa Rica this week. Well, uh, before the break, we teased uh, an important topic here on on child care. Both Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton have issued statements on behalf of their parents regarding new child care policies for families across America. Federal legislation has not touched this issue in over a decade. What are the benefits of our current legislation? And where can we improve? Here to shed light on this issue is Dr. Corey Stema, an associate professor of social work at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Uh, Dr. Stema, thank you so much for being on The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Now, uh, this is such an interesting topic, you know. The implications of of how the history of child care uh, impact us today, what... so. Obviously, child care matters. We all know that, especially people that, you know, in a household where both parents are working and and they rely heavily on it. Um, What are some of the problems that are are plaguing the current way that Americans view child care? Um, Well, um, I think that most of us really do uh, tend to view it as a personal concern, something we struggle with, um, you know, when we've weathered problems. Afterwards, we might laugh about it or commiserate with colleagues, but um, I don't think we've really taken it seriously for the societal concern that it is. Um, Child care helps us have, you know, better future citizens. They help us as parents be better workers. Um, They help keep parents out of ethical binds. Um, and uh, we all have an interest in it, but we don't really treat it that way. So that was interesting. You said uh, helps uh, parents set of ethical binds. Could you elaborate on that a little more? Well, one of the uh, hardest things for parents is um, often finding a- appropriate and affordable childcare. Um, and if you are, and it particularly aff- it affects really all parents, but it particularly affects low-income parents. Um, it also might affect parents who have children with special needs um, or disabilities. Um, and so if you are facing the bind, I need to go to work in order to provide for my family, in order to be a responsible citizen. Um, but I also need to make sure that my child is being cared for safely. Um, my child is sick. Should I stay home? Do I, you know, what do I do? And um, it puts many parents in the bind of, you know, do I go to work to support my family um, or do I leave my child in perhaps inappropriate care or right. unsafe care? Right. So... It's it's possible, and I think your article touches on this a little bit, that, you know, maybe we're not totally aware or don't fully understand uh, the current child care policy. And 
How does how does that understanding or even lack of understanding of child care uh, influence the child care policy? Um, well, um, you know, when we say that we have a child care policy, the fact is that in the United States, we don't really have a comprehensive child care policy. We have a patchwork of policies that um, kick in um, and maybe apply to certain parts of child care, but we don't really have a, a comprehensive child care policy, I think, because we haven't thought about it as a public issue, but more of like a private trouble that people should kind of solve. When I say a patchwork, so we have some tax breaks for parents who earn enough money to be able to take care of them. Um, in one area, we have the quality rating and information systems um, that are, for the most part, voluntary. It's uh, federal through the state governments that are voluntarily applied that can, um, you know, help set standards for child care. And we have other programs that are designed to help low-income families, for example, Head Start um, or child care subsidies for parents um, who are receiving uh, or families who are receiving, receiving um, TANF benefits. Um, and we have Family Medical Leave Act that applies when we have sick children or um, for parents who give birth or adopt children. Uh, and it, it also actually applies for caring for self or caring for other uh, adults. Um, but that is really a patchwork where we take little bits and pieces of what would otherwise be a comprehensive child care policy as kind of band-aid or stopgap measures. But we don't really, we haven't really had a discussion about what a kind of a comprehensive child care policy would look like in this country. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so obviously you already touched upon some of the benefits for parents of child care. Talk a little bit more about the benefits of child care for the children themselves. Mm, okay. Well, there, there's actually um, a pretty solid literature um, that shows that when children receive age-appropriate, um, developmentally informed child care, that they do well and they do much better than their peers who don't receive that. Um, and those benefits are often long-term. Um, Hugh Heckman has uh, designed, Nobel laureate Hugh Heckman has designed this curve, which actually shows that um, the more you invest, the earlier, the more earlier investments actually have more bang for their buck than even later investments, right? So um, the earlier you invest in children, the more benefits we're going to reap down the road um, in terms of their outcomes on almost any measure that you're looking at. Okay, so uh, speaking of early investment in, in child care, what, what uh, is an appropriate age to start putting, uh, to start having child care for our children? Uh, well, I think, um, you know, when children are born, they need to be cared for. Um, even parents who are caring for their children, that's a form of child care. And if they're foregoing paid employment that they might need to support themselves and their own children, we should be thinking about that as well. So a lot of times when we think of child care policy, we think about, oh, it's always about other people caring for um, someone else's children. But child care, a comprehensive child care policy would look at the whole picture, right, how our child, and would give options. So for parents who want to stay home with their children because they feel that, you know, that is the best option for them and their families, how can we support that? Um, so I don't really know. I mean, I think we talk about zero to, it really is zero. The money you have a chair, uh, child, someone is caring for that child, whether it is you or someone else. Okay, and so that maybe that's part of where the the misunderstanding of child care policy comes in is you know you know you mentioned that there's the mindset that it's somebody else watching your child, but um, uh, um, 
So here's what I want to do. Uh, I was hoping, because you mentioned in the article that you wrote here, mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about the history of child care. Can you sort of break down some of the changes that child care has gone through uh, throughout the past few decades and how that impacts child care today? Um, hmm, okay. Well, uh, I started off real, uh, and, and the article is actually co-authored with Elizabeth Pally, who I've done a lot of work with um, on this issue. We started off really uh, early on um, looking at um, child care that was provided during World War II uh, to enable uh, women uh, to go to work in factories because we needed that for the war effort. Um, so child care has always served a societal function as well. Um, and that was pretty short-lived um, when uh, the war was over and um, women's labor was no longer required um, and men were coming back from the war and there was an attempt to um, uh, really try and encourage women to leave the workforce to create opportunities for men uh, returning from war, that, that child care ended. So that was sort of a short-lived and it served a particular purpose. Um, and um, and then we start seeing um, efforts at cha- uh, comprehensive child care policy beginning during the Nixon era. Um, and so um, we had a comprehensive child care bill that was passed by both houses of Congress um, and was ultimately vetoed by then-President Nixon in the early 70s. Um, so that was really a child care policy that didn't happen. Um, and um, we see each subsequent attempt at um, crafting some sort of a child care policy, I would say, got narrower um, in the sense that it was aimed at a smaller segment of the population and less ambitious in terms of what it would provide. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Corey Stema, who is talking to us about child care. And uh, when we come back, we're going to dive a little more, uh, a little deeper into this topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and we're helping you live a healthier and happier life. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Uh, Before the break, we were speaking with Dr. Corey Stema, who is an associate professor and academic coordinator for the Master of Social Work and Juris Doctor Dual Degree Program at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Stema's expertise and research interests include child care policy and prostitution. She is a member of both the Law and Society Association and the National Association of Social Workers. And she's here again with us now. Uh, Dr. Stema, thank you so much for being here on the program. Um, You're welcome. So before the break, you gave us a quick rundown of the history of child care. What are, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from the history of child care in America? Um, well, I'm, I think that the child care policy that we have, circling back a little bit to your first question um, as well, is that what we have now helps some people in some situations to meet some of their needs. But 
um, it doesn't help everybody all of the time in terms of meeting all of the child care needs. Uh, and um, I think what I'm seeing right now, which is one of the things that prompted us to write the article, is that over the past couple of years there has been renewed attention to child care and um, some of the problems, the lack of a comprehensive policy um, creates for families and for employers, frankly, um, and so we're encouraged by this renewed attention. So we've had President Obama and the First Lady talking about it. We've had both of our um, main uh, presidential candidates talking about it, as well as um, their respective daughters, as you mentioned. Um, and so I think um, maybe some of the lessons we've learned is that it, it just doesn't work, um, and, um, and there seems to be a growing interest in figuring out how we might be able to do something that works better. So uh, it doesn't work in the sense that a comprehensive plan doesn't work, right? Well, when I say, um, you know, maybe it would be easier to pick an example, right? So if we take the example of the Family Medical Leave Act, when I said that, you know, child care policies don't work for everybody, for the, you know, just some people, some of the time in some situations. Um, so Family Medical um, Leave Act um, really treats childbirth as if it, you know, which, you know, as if it were an illness. Um, that's how it kind of gets... Um, in there, um, so if a person gives birth or adopts a child, they can take paid leave. Now, um, this only gives you a certain amount of leave. Um, the leave is not paid leave, so if you don't make enough money or if you haven't been able to save enough money, you might not be able to take that uh, leave. Um, it also only applies to companies of a certain size and to certain workers within those companies. Right. Um, so it really doesn't help. Um, there are a lot of people that are not helped or that even if they're eligible for it, can't take advantage of it. And it's only for a short time and it doesn't really cover the full amount of time or even um, very much of the amount of time that someone might be needing childcare. Um, really between the age of zero and when children hit kindergarten, there is not very much. And even kindergarten in some places is a half day. Right. There's also a certain number of hours that the employee has to have met, correct? Um, yeah, when I say certain, it's only certain kinds of employees, and they have to have worked um, for a certain amount of time um, prior to um, requesting the leave. Um, it um, only applies to companies that have um, large companies that have a certain number of workers, um, and so, um, and like I said, it's also not paid leave. There have been some changes at the state level where states have extended this um, by either extending the length of time or by making the leave paid or by making it apply to smaller companies. But that was just one example, right, the Family Medical Leave Act of, you know, where there is just partial coverage for some people for some of the time. But it really applies to almost any kind of policy. Um, for example, we could look, if we were going to, again, look at kindergarten, you know, a half day of kindergarten, um, that's not really a program that would help working parents meet their child, uh, child care needs. Um, we could look at um, benefits that um, that uh, families who are receiving public benefits might be eligible for. The eligibility criteria are very low, and so there are many families that are working poor that might not be eligible for child care subsidies, but really can't afford to pay for child care. Right. So that's another example. So, so almost any policy you would look at, you would see that it really only very partially meets the needs that it's actually designed to meet. Right. So it's not like there's a one-size-fits-all 
policy that would that would benefit everybody. Um, so you have talked about some of the benefits and also some of the limitations of of current childcare policies. I'm just curious. I want kind of want to take this in a slightly different direction. As sure. a parent of of two children myself, um, we don't. Uh, we haven't put our children in in childcare, you know, in a daycare. Or my my daughter does go to preschool, but um, we uh, I'm the only one that works. My wife does not work. Uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression that they they can't put their child in a daycare situation and have both of them working because of maybe some of the negative impacts it would have on them. Can you is there anything in your research that that can speak to that or what has been your experience with with parents that have that sort of mindset? Well, I mean, I guess there's a few responses. I'm a parent of three children myself, and I started looking into child care policy as someone who studies policy when I had my own children. And I thought, oh, you know, I uh, how did I not pay attention to this or notice this? Um, I think when we think of a child, uh, comprehensive child care policy, if you look at other countries, um, I think parents should be, have the option to make those decisions on their own. Um, the research shows that children who are in quality, developmentally appropriate child care do as well as children who are cared for by their own parents. But certainly every family has to make that decision for themselves. People have different beliefs. People have different ideas about what's best for their children. Parents are different and children are different, right? So child care or certain kinds of child care might be appropriate for some children, less appropriate for others. And there are many forms of child care. I think I said very early on that I think of parents caring for their own children also as a part of child care. And the kind of child care that I would like to see would be one that allowed parents and families to make those decisions. If And you are uh, fortunate um, that... Uh, uh, your wife is able to stay home with your children um, if that is what you want. There are some people who would very much want that but can't afford to do that. And what about single parents? Um, so I would like to see, um, and I think um, some of the proposals really would allow um, for parents to make the decision that you've made for your children, for their own children, or if they so choose to go to work and know that they were able to leave their children in a child care option, whether that was a family family uh, or family group care or center-based care um, uh, or whether they were uh, paying an individual to take care of their children in their home, I would like to see all of those options supported. Okay. Because I don't think that, the, you know, I think that we should have the freedom to make those choices. And frankly, not everybody has the freedom to make the choices that, that you do and, or that I do. Sure, sure, yeah. So, uh, what are what are some of the then the economic benefits that can come from childcare reform? Well, um, I, many of the supporters of childcare um, are come from business. Um, if you are an employer and um, your worker is not comfortable where they have placed their child. Um, or if they're not comfortable with the stability of that child care, or if they're worried that they brought a sick child to child care because they couldn't afford to take that leave. Um, I think that employers would benefit from workers who know that their children are in safe, uh, in a safe and stable arrangement. Um, we also lose um, to the workforce um, uh, people who um, can feel that um, child care is so unaffordable that they decide, like in your situation, that maybe someone will be staying home. One of the parents will be, st- if it is a two-parent family, is staying home. And so we lose talent, people who might otherwise decide to stay in the 
workforce or return to the workforce earlier. Um, and so um, we lose that talent um, and the opportunity and, and the, the people who are choosing to opt out, not because they want to opt out, but because they feel forced to do so um, because of the high cost of child care, um, have opportunity costs that they've lost as well. Um, so I think there are, uh, like I said, there are a lot of businesses who are behind um, child care. Um, and um, I think the reason is, is because it makes good practical sense. So what, I mean, as far as businesses themselves, is there anything that they can do to, I know that a lot of these businesses have their own uh, daycare programs, anything that they can do to incentivize their employees to to participate in that program if if they're not getting support elsewhere? Um, well, I mean, I don't know if it's a lot of companies that have those programs, but there certainly are, and I think that those are exemplary, and um, we should be looking to them to see what works. Um, I think on-site child care, if it is good quality child care, would probably be incentive enough um, for um, many employees to, to take advantage. Um, the advantage of being close to your child while your child is in care, um, knowing that they're in good hands and um, knowing that the care is quality care. So what companies can do is they can make sure that they are hiring good providers, um, that, um, they're, that if they are um, creating spaces, that these are uh, safe spaces for children to be in. Um, and um, I think that, that uh, companies could really offer this as a benefit to entice workers to, um, to work there. Right. I know right. if I were a parent, that would be, uh, you know, that would be an incentive for me to come to work at a company like that. Absolutely. I mean, I am a parent, but if, if, if I were in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Just that knowing. That would be a big draw. Yeah, just knowing that, you know, they're right downstairs and if there was an emergency, you'd be there immediately to help out or you could see them if you if you were wanting to see them. So uh, you talked about child care. And I'm saying an added benefit, even if an employer doesn't have child care on site, to understand if an employer, let's say, has a sick child at home, um, not to pressure them to, or um, whether it's explicit or implicit pressuring for them to, you know, not take that time to be with their child if they need to stay home with their with their child. Um, to maybe provide opportunities to work flexibly from home on that day or to just take that day off, knowing that when the parent comes to work, they will both be appreciative of that employer and, you know, and um, conduct their work accordingly, um, and that they'll also come back to work with, um, you know, so renewed commitment to that employer and also to be able to focus on their work when they are there. That's great. That's a great example, and it's really smart business, too. Uh, You talked about child care uh, in America. And I'm just curious, uh, how does how does America rate on a worldwide scale when it comes to child care reform? Oh, very poor. We're like at the bottom three. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, if you look at any of the indicators, um, um, we are very low, um, even compare, very low at the bottom of um, industrialized countries um, that are like ourselves. Um, so we're very low, um, except, however, for the U.S. military. <laughs> so um, a lot of times we think, oh, you know, we could never do this. Our country is different from any other country. But the U.S. military actually has uh, a good child care program. And so we can look internally for some examples of what might be due. But we do, we rank very low um, on, you know, leave for parents and child care policies, um, embarrassingly low, I would say. So which which of the countries around the world would rank higher on that list then? Uh, pretty much anybody. Um, I just mean at the, who, who would be at the very top of that more, list, maybe? 
I'm sorry, well, even countries, so, you know, maybe even countries that are more similar to ourselves in terms of their economic outlook. So, um, maybe, so, you know, maybe people would say to me if I said, okay, Norway has good childcare, they'll say, well, we're not like Norway, right? I mean, that's not our, our government. We have a different government philosophy. Um, we have a different tax structure. Um, France has excellent childcare and it's had for a long time. But even if you look at countries like England, which is more similar to us, um, or to Canada, um, they all have um, better child care than we do. Okay, and then uh, Dr. Stema, just in, in wrapping up, we talked a little bit at the beginning about Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton talking mm-hmm. about child care reform. How has this election had an effect on child care policy? And of the two, would you say that one has a better plan for child care uh, reform? Um, yeah, well, I think we have yet to see what the actual impact is going to be on child care policy. Um, you know, I think if anything, um, so we don't know the concrete details what's going to come out. It will in part, you know, be determined by who is in fact elected. And, you know, as we know, the president can affect policy on his or her own. Um, it will depend on, you know, who we have in, in Congress as well. Um, but I think it's done something very healthy, which is draw our attention to child care as a uh, concern that crosses party lines um, and that really affects all of us and it behooves us to have a conversation about. I mean, I do think that Hillary Clinton's plan do a lot more to uh, toward creating, you know, what I was referring to, a comprehensive child care policy. Um, one example, um, Trump's policy um, would extend uh, family leave, but only to mothers. Um, so it doesn't really address if you had a, um, a Two, uh, two fathers or, a, uh, you know, one parent family or, you know, if in a, in a, uh, or, it, and it doesn't really talk about what happens when people would, um, it doesn't, um, it wouldn't help people who adopt children um, either um, or who choose in a, um, in a um, different sex panel, if the father would want to stay home it, um, and the mother would go back to work. So it only addresses um, that and it would be shorter. Um, and um, so Hillary Clinton's policy of extending the family leave gives a longer leave, and it would, just like our Family Medical Leave Act, would apply to anyone. Um, And there are other differences um, in their uh, proposals as well. There's some indication that Trump's policies would provide a greater benefit to higher income families, whereas um, the Clinton policy would provide um, more benefits across the board to a wider swath of um, income brackets. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, and uh, we won't have to wait too much longer because, as you know, Election Day is 13 days away. Yes. Dr. Stema, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. We really appreciate you and the great work that you're doing. Uh, Dr. Corey Stema is an associate professor of social work at the University of Maryland School of Social Work, and she's been talking to us about child care reform. We'll take a quick break. When we come back... We will be uh, having some more fun, continuing the discussion, and uh, talking about some of the stories that are in the news right now. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live happier, healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, during the break, Terry was telling me about uh, 
who Hillary and Donald Trump are sending here to Utah to kind of, I don't know, to camp out, I guess, until this thing is over. So the Trump campaign is sending Mike Pence. Okay. He'll be here for an event. And also uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign is sending Donna Brazil, the interim uh, DNC Democrat committee chairperson here. <laughs> to uh, have an event to drum up support. And it's the Democrats send people here to make sure that Trump keeps his eye on Utah and off maybe Florida as much. I would think, you know, people that are kind of on the fence about Donald Trump would appreciate the fact that it's Mike Pence that is here in Utah. Well, that's the other thing is he comes out to states that are kind of maybe in play. Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Mm. I think is kind of considered in that region and you send him out here and uh, maybe he'll stabilize things and not make him not so tedious for the Trump campaign Hmm. instead of, you know, maybe rolling around Ohio or something where apparently this is going to be settled. So with 13 days left and in a state like Utah where, you know, those electoral votes may not go as far as obviously California, is that, is that a good, is it a smart strategic move at this point? I don't know. We'll see. Hmm. Interesting. It, it, usually, usually the West gets ignored at this stage because it's supposed to be locked up and taken care of. It's not, you know, there's usually one or two states that might be in play, but there's probably about four that they're they're worried about. And Mike Pence is going to be in several of them today. It's just so. nice to be noticed. You know, it's like a birthday party that you can't attend, but at least you got an invitation. I don't know if that's a good parallel, but in there other it is. news, uh, there's some Republicans across the nation running for office threatening lawsuits over TV ads from their competitors who are linking them to Trump. Really? So you have, uh, let's see, five Republicans, uh, a representative from Illinois, from uh, a guy running in Colorado, a guy running in Florida, New York, Pennsylvania. All of them are Republicans running for office. Their Democratic challenger are going, if you vote for them, you're voting for Trump. And now they're, they're, they're threatening to sue because they're like, we're not connected to Trump. Don't connect us to Trump. That's not fair. So, so. Th- those are grounds for a legal battle well, then, right? they're threatening it. We'll see what Interesting. happens. This headline, nearly 40% of consumers say they will shun Trump businesses. Trump businesses. Trump businesses. Hotels, golf courses. Anything with steaks, Trump in apparently. it. Wow. But I was talking to my wife. I go, most of the Trump brand are hotels and things that are out of the reach of most Americans. Sure. Right? His new hotel <laughs> yeah. is like $800 a night. Yeah. The one in D.C. Hmm. And other hotels are expensive and golf courses and things. The majority of America, the majority, I think, of the people supporting him would never go to a Trump hotel. Now, how many They're people- more of a Motel 6 or a Best Western type of thing. You know, it's, I, I don't know. So that's my perception. How many people are trying Trump steak? Like, why would you? I don't knock know if Trump steak actually it? exists. Some of the products, I don't know if outside of his resorts, if they actually like. You can't go down to the grocery store and buy a Trump steak. Is it an actual Trump steak, or I is it know. a steak that he just buys from a distributor and slaps his name that, on it? That's probably more accurate. Hmm, interesting. Also, Ivanka Trump. She's having. She's been trying to keep her clothing brand sort of out of the fray. And uh, they're saying here customers continue to call, or uh, yeah, customers continue to call for boycotts of her fashion line because of her association with her father. Well, she can't really help her association with her father, right? Well, some of the supporting things, not supporting what things. What's she you know, supposed to do? Disown him? I don't know, but that's kind of what's happening. Oh, that's sad. It's sad when it hurts a millionaire's clothing line. We're going to take a quick break. That is the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. 
When we come back, we'll be having more fun. We'll be talking more about Howl at the Moon Day and Pumpkin Day, and also a little bit more about relationships and how important it is to be happy and how that has an effect on our relationships. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson here with Terry South. We are manning the ship here today. Is it manning the ship? Is that the correct phraseology it depends the show's not over yet okay we could be going down <laughs> with the ship <laughs> going down in flames no that's so far not after happen. yesterday's show there, there was some uh there was some good reaction to uh things that were done and said on the air excellent yeah well hopefully there were some admonish ad- admonishments after the show like you need to you know maybe think about this and... hopefully it's not all downhill from here we'll see so yeah matt townsend dr matt is away in costa rica having a grand old time howling at the moon because today is Howl at the Moon Day. And when we turn it over to Sadie Nielsen here in a second, we're going to have her give us her best Howl at the Moon. Um, she's shaking her head, but uh, we maybe know. Maybe she won't participate. We know she'll do it. Uh, it's also Pumpkin Day. So make sure to go out and have a slice of pumpkin pie or pumpkin soup or a pumpkin blizzard at you Dairy could, Queen. You could buy a pumpkin. What, why would you do that? Halloween's next week. Oh, right. Monday. Yeah. Now, do you guys like to carve your pumpkins or do you just like to put them out in your front porch as is? It's not my thing. Not your thing? Either one? If we get one, it's my <laughs> wife's choice. And if they do anything, it's up to my kid. It seems like I'll the... help, but I don't, I don't like yeah. run in and become the... It seems like uh, the last year or two, we've only put them out to display them. Like, we've picked such good pumpkins that we don't want to destroy them by cutting holes in them but you know it also makes them rot faster yep. and i don't know maybe when it comes down to it we just don't like sticking our hands inside of a pumpkin yeah it's kind of gross yeah you're pulling all the seeds and you know. yeah and you always think you're going to do something with the seeds oh, yeah. oh we'll put them in the oven and we'll we'll roast them and and yeah, right. you know eat them and that never happens you just you roast them and or, then you throw them out when i was a kid my mom would actually do that and then next june we'd find the little container of pumpkin seeds in the back of the cupboard you're like oh gross <laughs> <laughs> so go enjoy some of that fun. Uh, don't be like Terry and me, the Grinches of Halloween. Go uh, celebrate it in all its pumpkin glory. So uh, we do have some exciting stories that we're going to talk about here in a minute, such as a woman giving birth in a place that a lot of us frequent. Hmm. Um, but she was very polite. She was very insistent that uh, she that, take care of That's difficult to do. Yes. Especially when you're delivering a, a baby. Right. Uh, we'll also be talking about um, – well, no, we, we talked about the World Series. We'll, we'll leave that as is because I don't think anybody in here is a Cleveland or Cubs fan anyway. Nope. Okay. Well, speaking of Sadie and Howl at the Moon Day, we are going to turn it over to her to introduce her news by Howling at the Moon. Sadie, how are you doing? Reed, I'm sorry to say that was a little better than yours. Wow. Sadie, what's going on around the country? Thank you. 
About 70% of voters believe Hillary Clinton will be elected president and that Donald Trump will refuse to accept that outcome, according to a new national CNN ORC poll conducted over the weekend. Additionally, the results show that more people have faith that the votes will be counted accurately and cast fairly and be- than believe so in 2008. About 80% of people said that the losing candidate must accept the results and concede to the winner once vote counts have been certified. 93% of Clinton's base believe she'll win the candidacy, but only 50% of Trump supporters say he thinks he is the likely winner. The Senate Leadership Fund, a super PAC with ties to the majority leader Mitch McConnell, is investing $25 million in six key races, with the fund's president saying they'll go out guns blazing. Political reports that the Republican won't have an easy time keeping their majority, and in many close races, Democrats are outspending the GOP candidates by millions of dollars. The fund will send a $7.5 million to Nevada, more than $5 million will be spent in Pennsylvania, $4 million in Indiana, $3 million in North Carolina, and $2 million in New Hampshire and Missouri. Most of the money will go to purchase commercials, which are very expensive this late in the campaign season. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell announced Tuesday that he will be voting for Hillary Clinton in the presidential election. Powell, who served under George W. Bush, said Clinton will serve with the distinction and cited her experience and stamina. Powell said that Donald Trump, on the other hand, seems to be selling people a bill of goods. He also noted that the Republican candidate's lack of experience said that and that he's insulted a huge swath of people. Powell's announcement comes just one month after his emails bashing Clinton and her husband were leaked. And finally, so uh, we talk about sports every now and then, like we're talking about the World Series right now. Um, I think this might be my new favorite sport, though, after watching this. Okay. So there is a team of robots designed... Nope, not a sport. Shh. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't ask your opinion. By Texas researchers (laughs) defeated a squad of Australian bots in soccer for the RoboCup Challenge Championship in China. I'm still talking. I'm sorry. The Austin Villa... (laughs) (laughs) U.S. team designed and operated by robotics experts from the University of Texas at Austin took on the Run Swift team created by researchers at Australia's University of New South Wales in the final match of the RoboCop Challenge, part of the 2016 World Robot Conference in Beijing. The robots, which stand just under two feet tall, use a wireless system to communicate with one another during the game, as opposed to being controlled by their creators. The U.S. team came out victorious 7-3 in a game marred by technical difficulties on the Australian side. Mm. So even in robotics, in soccer, we dominate. Yes. Wow. So do you think this is a sport that we'll start uh, seeing at the Olympics? Nope. I think that would be really cool, but no, because I think they only let humans participate in that. It's an activity. It is a competition, not a sport. Hey, now, come on. If we can can see people playing video games on TBS. Not a sport. That's an activity. It's a competition. It's not a sport. I, I think it's only a matter of time. Before we see a robotic sport, I think the Olympics are a discriminatory yeah, I think uh, competition. So too. You know, there's a or video. A non, I'm sorry, non-discriminatory. There's right. a video out actually uh, that was going around a couple months ago. I'll repost it on our Twitter. That was talking about how robots are really they're um, what do you call it? Discriminated against. Robots are people too. Nope. Robots are people I, too. By definition, no, they're not. <laughs> they're robots. Well, Have you ever seen the movie I Robot? Yeah. I wish I hadn't seen iRobot. It's a long movie. (laughs) I mean, you get to the end of the thing, and then 4,000 years in the future, after an ice age, you're like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? I need to go home. So watch out for that sport in the Olympics. It's coming. 
sooner than you know. Terry will need to accept it at some point or another. It's an activity. Terry, it's a competition. Terry will need to accept at one point or another that robots will become so human-like that he will have to respond to them like humans, whether well, he likes it or not. It would be better to have them crash into each other and get concussions than us as humans. Yeah, so sure. Go for well, it. Well, okay. once, we, once it happens, once that sport comes along, it'll only be a matter of time before they completely take over from there. So it was fun while it lasted, I guess. All right, Sadie, and good job uh, holding your own against Terry there. Appreciate so. it. <laughs> good stuff. Thanks, Sadie. So we teased this before we went over to Sadie, but we want to make sure that we give you the full story here. A woman shopping Sunday morning at a Walmart in Payson, Utah, surprised workers and customers when she approached register 11. I'm glad that they put the register number in there just yes, so, so we can know. steer clear of that. Right. Dropped to her knees, clutched her stomach, and pulled out her wallet. She was in labor, but she insisted on paying for her items first before she took care of her next transaction, having the baby right there in the store. Hmm. We weren't really interested in taking her money at that point, but she insisted, says Walmart manager Dustin Haight, who called 911 and implored her not to worry about the tab. It wasn't like she was like, okay, let's get this baby out and then I'll pay. She paid and then she had the baby. Hmm. Can you imagine that? Wait, hold on. Let me give you let me give you well, my twenty bucks first. If she was in the express lane. Yeah. If she already had ten items, would that be eleven now? Would she need to go to another lane because she had too many items? That's a good point. I don't know. She sounds like that type of person that's like, well, oh, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Before I even pay, let me gather up all my items, take them to the regular yeah. checkout stand. Wow. Well, uh, yeah. So steer clear of register 11 at the Payson Walmart. They cleaned it. You know they came in <laughs> with a steam washer and cleaned it off. No problem. But it's, yeah, oh, I mean. Oh, man. That's probably not the most ideal place to have a child. Okay. This woman needs to end up on Ellen or she will. Walmart or needs to give her ten grand in Walmart gift certificates. This is this is so worthy of that type of a prize. Do you think mm. they'll do it? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean Ellen's got all kinds of time to fill on her show, so yeah. Okay, so don't well, worry. Well, I found something on YouTube, call them. That's how the show works. Don't worry, Walmart cleans their stores so you don't have to steer clear of register 11. Just so you know when you walk in there you're like, "Uh-oh, I know what happened there." Yeah. <laughs> they should they should have some kind of a marker there. Yeah. Like on on this day this historic a, like event a, a happened. a plaque on the floor or something. Yeah. yeah. Or like maybe they can bronze a statue of her. It's like the memorial register for that event or something. <laughs> yeah. They can have a little ribbon cutting or something. Here's another good one. A disagreement that began over a pair of camouflage trousers mm. has seen members of a UK parish council resign en masse in a bitter dispute that has divided a rural community. Ian Dowson, 56, took offense when Councillor Joe Armstrong rebuked him for wearing the intimidating trousers intimidating to a council meeting. Trousers. That's have the you, term. Have you ever considered uh, pants camu- intimidating? Yeah. No. Or camouflage, let alone pants in general. Right. No. Wow. Okay. Mr. Dowson owns no fewer than 41 pairs of camouflage trousers. This is a man who loves his camo. I don't even know if I have 41 pairs of trousers in general. Right. Uh, but think of the variety of outfits he could come up with with 41 camouflage pairs of pants. Camouflage goes with everything, doesn't it? He thinks it does. Because, <laughs> you know... 
It doesn't. If it's camouflage, it doesn't even matter because you can't you can't even see that they're there. Right. Uh, by his own admission, rarely wears anything else unless attending a wedding or a funeral. He right. denies looking threatening in his military style clothing and called in a mediator after being publicly criticized over his sartorial choices at a meeting of Esh Parish Council in County Durham. I, you know, you got to hand it to the guy though for at least. Wearing something else for a wedding. So you know this had some person. It started with some personal disagreement over some funding issue or whatever on the county council, and then someone finally said something like, "Why do you always wear those camouflage pants?" And then it turned into, "We need to have a more dignified dress code when we're dealing with county business." And then yeah. it just and then it escalated to the point where half the council resigned as they <laughs> took. I mean, it just it turned into this huge thing. Other than just you know. I'm guessing Addressing some guy's pants. that there was a deep I th- there was something deeper going oh, on yeah. there other than the pants personality conflict whatever but then it turned into he is wearing intimidating trousers and I want him removed and half the council agreed or something. I don't know they all just decided to walk away well finishing it off here he <clears throat> he claims that the remarks meant uh, Mr Armstrong had failed to treat him with the respect called for in the council's code of conduct and had brought the authority into disrepute uh, the disagreement has caused 11 members of the 16-member council to resign in protest, just like you were saying. 11 out of 16 gone over a pair of pants. But along the way, you know other people have been insulted, feelings have been hurt, and that's why they decide to step out. Because why would you just walk away from a, a job like that over a pair of pants? So if you want to make a statement, both a fashion statement and maybe a political statement – Pull out one of your 41 pairs of camouflage pants, put them on, leave them off for the funerals and the weddings, unless it is maybe a military wedding or funeral, then I guess that's okay. (laughs) Wow. See, these are important life lessons that we're sharing with you here on the Matt Townsend Show. Terry, wow. I feel like I'm a better person now. Really? Yeah. I thought it was kind of a (laughs) sad story. (laughs) Well, we're going to have more fun stories like this and others when we come back. Also, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how having a happy spouse could be good for your health. Hmm, interesting. You're going to want to listen to that when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live happier, healthier, and hopefully better lives. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in beautiful Costa Rica. Well, the old saying is, happy wife, happy life. But is there evidence to suggest the actual health benefits to a successful relationship? Dr. Bill Chopik, who is a social personality psychologist, studies how relationships affect us. And he's here to discuss just that with us Dr. Chopik, thank you so much for joining us on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. No, uh, great to be with you, Jeff. So I got to ask right off the bat, 
What was the inspiration of this study? Was it uh, was it anything personal? Anything going on at home? <laughs> uh, well, I think I've been the recipient of really good relationships and happy people. Um, but the real, real, the real um, inspiration was that uh, there's all this research and quite a large body of research showing that happy people are healthier people. They do a lot of things well. They exercise. They eat fruits and vegetables. Uh, they don't smoke. They don't drink. Um, but then we realized, hey, you know, um, the uh, characteristics of the people around us can have really large impacts on us, uh, good for the good, for the better, and for worse. So we thought, hey, maybe the happiness of other people have an effect on us as well. So uh, for a first step, we just decided to examine um, the happiness of arguably the closest person in our lives, our romantic partner. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to tell my wife to go back and listen to this because, you know, she's generally a happy person, but she also... uh, I think she would like for me to to shed a few pounds, so <laughs> as would I. So anyway, uh, tell us a little bit more about the study, how it was conducted, and what uh, what were the demographics. Sure. Uh, so we uh, were able to um, recruit a sample of nearly 2,000 couples from the Health and Retirement Study. It's this really large panel study. It's nationally representative. Um, so everyone is over the age of 50, so these are generally older adults that have been married uh, quite a long time, like on average about 30 years. Um, and we measured people's happiness at time one, so they answer questions like, uh, in all, I'm generally satisfied with my life. Looking back, I don't really regret um, anything. And then we measured um, health, so things like chronic illnesses, uh, have you had a heart attack, a stroke, arthritis? Um, But then we also measured physical activity, so uh, how often do you go to the gym, go for walks, um, lift weights, uh, do ironing, do laundry, so just a general index of how active they are. Interesting. And I wonder, you know, how much finances play into this as well, you know, because obviously there are some people that are so focused on finances that maybe that's where they find their happiness, or at, at least that's where they—that's how they think they're happy—is if they're financially successful. Does any of that play into the study at all? What, uh, the the varying uh, financial situations of these couples? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there's several routes to happiness. Um, I will say among the largest predictors um, are close relationships. So like income is a large predictor of happiness, but then after a certain threshold where you, after you basically meet the needs of life, so shelter and food and warmth, um, income doesn't matter as much as people think. Uh, I will say that we did end up controlling for socioeconomic status, um, and these effects were found over and above that. So um, there's something unique about people's emotional states that are predicting better health uh, for both them and their partners. Okay. So um, now you said this was couples that have been married over 30 years, mostly. Yep. Okay. Um, Now, have you done any studies or or is this part of the study where it's not just limited to to people that have been married that long or to heterosexual couples or could it also apply to people that have pets or that are, you know, single parents and the relationship that they have with their children? Right. Um, Yeah, so I think that um, the happiness of people around you probably have this synergistic effect. So it's probably not specific to just older adults, um, heterosexual relationships. Like I would see no reason why um, people who don't fit that mold don't benefit from being around happy people. Um, So I think 
when we think of like why this is happening, I can only imagine that having um, children having positive relationships with them would also impact health. And, um, you know, we focused on older adults because physical health is such a concern for them. But sure. I can imagine that, you know, of course, younger couples, if you're partnered with someone who's really happy, then you're really happy. And then you hopefully do healthy things together. Okay, so is it is healthy living improving relationships, or is it the healthy relationship that is improving physical well being? Can it, are those two interchangeable like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's probably it's probably bidirectional where you're doing healthy things and that makes you and your partner healthy or happier. Um, we did have a longitudinal component, so we followed these couples over time, and um, being happy had a perspective link. So it, it looked like happiness was causing better health over time. But I can only imagine that um, there's this sort of spiraling effect where um, couples start exercising together, or they start uh, eating healthier together, and then they might, as a result, feel closer and feel happy. You know, it's really interesting because uh, just the other day we had a guest who was talking about the mental and emotional benefits of exercising, and he talked about how when people are given a prescription to exercise from their doctor, uh, 36% are likely to follow that prescription. I wonder if there are any doctors out there who would prescribe happiness. Just go out and be happy. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. It's interesting to think about what the intervention level will be. So is it, or should we be targeting uh, people's happiness, so will then happiness lead to healthy behavior? I think you can probably target both. So, yeah, um, go for a pleasant walk or have a really great conversation with someone, but then, you know, you can integrate that with physical activity as well. So going on a walk with someone and having a really good conversation is something that enhances both happiness and health at the same time. So, you know, we think that they're mutually exclusive, but maybe they're not. So uh, what else can you tell us about this study that um, that you haven't shared with us already? Uh, I think the most surprising thing was the physical activity link. So um, being paired with a happy partner was good for your health. You had fewer, um, you just felt healthier on average. You had lower levels of disability, so difficulty like tying your shoes or getting dressed. But then we also measured physical activity, so things like really simple things like going for walks or doing laundry or, um, you know, like I said, even lifting weights. So this really intense uh, form of exercise was affected by being paired with someone who's really happy. So that was probably one of the more impressive um, findings from our study. Wow. And, you know, if I'm being too personal, just let me know. But have you have you noticed this in your own life, with whether it's a relationship with, with a spouse or with a parent or a child or a friend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, so uh, being with someone who's really happy is energizing. Um, and you sort of avoid all the negative um, health behavior. So a lot of times when uh, a couple members go out of town, the other person will lounge around or maybe um, splurge on pizza, and they just sort of devolve into this really primitive state when they're not around their partner. And I think part of that is because you're in a relationship where it fosters really healthy living. Um, so yeah, I've definitely been the recipient of it, and I've, I'm sure uh, you as well, you sort of know people in your life who aren't particularly happy, and you know that those people can often be a drain on you. Um, they make you feel bad. They maybe make you less likely to um, engage in healthy behavior or, you know, I just need a, I just need 
some sort of compensatory thing, like I need to eat a piece of cheesecake just to you know forget about this terrible interaction I've had. So I've, I've definitely experienced it both ways. Absolutely. You know, that, that brings up a good point because there are so many different ways that people deal with depression or, you know, not being happy at work or in their relationship is, you know, some people will go to the movies to, to have an escape or somebody will, hopefully they're not, but they'll turn to drugs and alcohol and then other people, and unfortunately, I kind of fall into this category at times with my wife. Uh, we we will kind of turn to the to the cupboard and see what snacks we have in there to <laughs> to kind of numb how we're feeling at the moment. Yeah. But uh, all oh, these are all really good uh, findings that you have in your study. Let's let's do this. Let's take a break. We're talking with Doctor Chopic, who is talking about how having a happy spouse could be good for your health. And uh, we will continue the discussion when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier and happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been speaking with Dr. Bill Chopic, who is a social personality psychologist psychologist interested in how relationships and the people in them change over time and across situations. His research focuses on how factors both inside, such as biological and hormonal, and outside, including social roles and geography of people, influence their approach to social relationships. And uh, Dr. Chopic, welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. So obviously, you know, and we mentioned this earlier uh, as the intro to the interview, happy wife, happy life is is sort of the... uh, the adage that that we're familiar with, but according to your study, happy wife equals healthy life, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, So a lot of people focus on just the well-being of others affecting our well-being, but we looked at this novel crossover between other people's happiness and our health. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about is the relationship with kids uh, in terms of, of this study, because I've got two little girls and getting them to eat their dinner or to eat anything healthy is like pulling teeth, right? And I, I'm I'm not alone in those regards. I, I At least I hope I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, just getting them to eat healthy foods or even eat their lunch can be a hassle. And I, I've heard it said that, uh, we, in fact, we just had a guest earlier in the week talking about this, how you know, when we are stressed out or if we're yelling or if we're frustrated, kids will pick up on that and uh, it affects how they behave. And so I wonder, too, if they can pick up on our level of happiness and how that affects their lives. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So there are studies looking at um, observer reports of happiness. So if you, if I asked you how happy um, is your partner or how happy are your children? You're actually a pretty good judge of how happy they are. So I think when um, children see, say, discord or unhappiness, I think it does definitely affect them. And then 
presumably it affects how they interact with their friends and the choices that they make in life. Okay, so it's important for us not only to be happy for our sake and our spouse's sake, but also for our children's sake, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Maybe they'll eat more of their dinner. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. More, more Brussels sprouts, hopefully. Yes, yes. Well, my, I, I'm lucky because my daughter will eat broccoli, but she'll only eat the, the sprout part of the broccoli and leave the stem on the table. Oh, yeah. So... Um, can you explain, this is interesting, because this is something we have not touched upon yet, and uh, your research is rooted in relationships, and you've done some, obviously, some very interesting studies there. Can you explain your study about changes in technology use and adult attachment? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so I generally study development and how, say, your, your approaches to close relationships change over time, and... Uh, one thing I was interested in is basically are there generational changes in how we approach relationships? So when you think of your relationship and maybe the relationships of younger people today, is there a large difference between how they approach relationships? Um, so we took this really large data set, I think it was around 250,000 people, uh, and we basically just measured changes over about a 10-year period, and we found that being anxious about relationships, so really worrying about whether people are uh, going to be there or declined over time. And part of that was explained by um, population-level social media use, so things like Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, those sort of things. So that, that was that particular study, and we, yeah, we found this really interesting effect. Hmm. So, um, so social media, Facebook, what about television and email and texting, what about those? You know, we didn't have a chance to look at those, um, but, you know, I think there's a general property that if things are leading to more social isolation, that's generally a bad thing. So uh, in that particular study, we took this sort of positive approach that um, social networking is sort of a way in which people can keep tabs on each other, uh, especially with people you've lost touch uh are falling out of touch with. So um, you can sort of not worry as much like where they are, if they're going to be there, because you sort of always are accessible to them. But things like television, um, that's sort of an activity that's often done in isolation. And um, it's it's hard to really make predictions about that and how that affects close relationships. But um, we decided to take a first step in looking at the more social media uh, uh, things predicting relationships. Sure. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how being happy can affect uh, your health and your spouse's health. Mm-hmm. What do you think, in terms of social media, mm-hmm. obviously there is so much unhealthy use of mm-hmm. social media and just media in general. What do you think a healthy dose of social media or, you know, watching television or what does that look like? Uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to give like an exact number, like only watch two hours a day or only be on your computer, especially because we lead, we lead really busy work lives. Um, I will say that if it starts to interfere with your social relationships outside of the media realm, then you have to start really worrying about it. So um, social technology can be this really amazing thing. Like we have studies on older adults that, you know, when they use technology, um, these people who are often very isolated, especially towards the end of life, feel like 
they're not as lonely, and as a result, they feel happier. So we have some studies on that, but then, as you just said, there are times when technology can be really problematic. And I think the line is drawn when it starts to negatively affect your close relationships. So if you go home every day and you do nothing but watch TV or go on Facebook and you don't talk to another human being throughout the day, I think that's when you have to start really worrying. Yeah, so maybe when your your child approaches you while you're watching a World Series game and says, hey, Dad, look at this drawing that I did at school today, and then you your response is to turn around and, and yell at them, that's probably a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, as far as social media is concerned, you know, you talked earlier in the program about how People tend to like being around people that are happy and that make them feel good about themselves. Do you think there's an opportunity for people to do that through social media, whether it's through coaching or just being, you know, posting positive posts on Facebook or or sending out, you know, encouraging text messages? Yeah, so there are uh, a few studies on that. So Facebook released a study where they – correlated uh, positivity in people's news feeds. So basically the status updates of your closest friends, um, if those are more positive, then later on you're, you're more likely to post something positive yourself. Um, so there is sort of this contagion effect where if you are exposed to more positive things, you become more positive yourself. Um, and there are ways of, I, I, I don't know if I would um, definitely recommend this, but there are ways of filtering social media so that you see more positive things, or you can block that really negative person uh, if you so desire. Um, There is some research by uh, one of my collaborators where they're sending um, text messages to people to help them live more in the moment and take people's uh, perspectives, feel more empathy. So they try to send text messages throughout the day saying, the next person you're interacting with, sort of try to take their perspective, try to learn about their feelings. and that work has shown a lot of promising results. So, uh, yes, technology can be really problematic, but then there are other times when there can be some really great opportunities to help people live uh, better and happier lives. You know, yeah, I can say I can say for me personally, when I'm the recipient of you know a pleasant text message or an encouraging text message, or you know somebody sends me a birthday wish on Facebook, it really does it really does help. Um, yeah. And obviously. There are so many technology is is advancing so quickly, and there is just so much more that we can't even imagine that's going to come out in the future. But how do you think this future technology will affect relationships? Yeah, so uh, we do see the remnants of that today. Sort of, we can sort of guess that there are times when technology can be really problematic. So um, I'm generally optimistic, though. So. Um, you know, just imagine 100 years ago, uh, we couldn't communicate with people in this really immediate environment. So you send someone a text, and then there's this, and if it's really important, you expect maybe them to respond within five minutes or respond within that day. That was almost unheard of earlier in our nation's history. So there's this really large explosion of communication um, that led to people being more and more socially connected. Now, whether or not they felt that way, that's a different argument. That they sort of felt like they were more socially supported by people, but at the very least, they're more accessible. Um, so I think that's sort of what technology is moving towards, greater and greater accessibility um, to people and integrating technologies across different devices. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, like you said, there's probably things that I can't even fathom. So, sure. Um, you know, maybe people can watch the World Series games together with someone who's, you know, sitting on the other side of the country. So like a, you know, a virtual yeah. AI or something like that. This is getting a little science fiction-y, but I think there are some really <laughs> exciting opportunities. You know, you brought up the point of how our expectations um, have have changed, you know, as far as our, our expectation for response time when, when it comes to text messages and, and phone calls and, and things of that nature. It's funny, I was watching a movie last night and this the phone rang and it was a landline and this woman dropped everything that she was doing. Oh, I got to go run and get the phone. And, you know, it's just so different. It's a completely yeah. different time how we go from, oh, if I don't if I don't get the phone as it rings and I'm out of luck, I don't hear from that person to, you know, expecting a response immediately. And you have you've got your phone everywhere you go. So, uh, Dr. Chopik, uh, just as we in closing here. On the studies that you've done and, and similar studies that are out there on this topic, how can we educate people on these findings so that we can make sure that we can be happy enough to have an impact on our health and the health of our spouse and those around us? Yeah, so the preponderance of what my work, I guess, is trying to show is that close relationships can have a really large impact on how happy we are, how healthy we are. And... Um, one message, one message that's often lost in that is that, as you might guess, relationships are a ton of hard work. You, have, you know, it's not always the best. Um, it's not always really happy, but if you really, truly invest in them, it can lead to some really great things. So um, we're doing studies now looking at the rate at which people invest in relationships, uh, predicting personality change over time. So does it sort of investing in these really great relationships fundamentally change who you are over time and across the lifespan. Um, so I guess we, when it comes to social relationships, close relationships, it's good to choose the best ones and, you know, throw yourself headfirst into those and, and make them a central part of your life. Well, Dr. Chopik, thank you so much for being with us on the program today, and thank you for your insight and the studies that you've conducted. Uh, I'll need to go home and have a little chat with my wife, and we can we can choose to be happy because a lot of people, I think, decide that uh, happiness is based upon their circumstances and that it's not a choice. So we appreciate you and all that you're doing. Uh, when We'll take a break. When we come back... We'll continue the discussion. We'll have a bit more fun. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live happier, healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. That was uh, one of our earlier picks of the 12 Days of Halloween movies. And later on in the program, Sean O'Neill and I will be talking about the next pick for the 12 Days of Halloween movies, and it's a good one. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, we are lucky enough and blessed to have a wonderful student producer here named Leanna Tan. You've probably heard many of her packages before. Uh, she's got her next one here for us today. It's a spooky time of year, obviously, where it's expected for people to be scared of creepy clowns or monsters or haunted houses. But do you have fears of some things that no one would ever expect? We all have irrational fears in our everyday lives. 
things that have nothing to do with ghosts or goblins. And today we're going to explore some of those, and our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to justify for us some of her very own irrational fears. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for Halloween. That is, the cute, adorable part of Halloween with babies dressed as pumpkins and paper cutouts of happy ghosts. Not the creepy, scary part. I'm way too much of a scaredy cat for that. In fact, I don't really understand why we have an entire holiday dedicated to fear. Seems like a really strange emotion to celebrate. But this time of year is giving me a lot of time to reflect on my own fears. Here are five of my very own irrational fears. What? Spiders. Of course, they're gross and creepy. why I have to justify this fear. They're tiny creatures with eight legs, already just makes me start itching, and on top of that, they have sticky feet that allows them to have superpowers of climbing on walls and across ceilings, which means in the blink of an eye, they can go from beside your foot to above your head. Frightening much? But the worst part of all is when they suddenly drop from the ceiling with their nasty strings and then start winding their way back up. So gross! That means that at any moment, they can go from above your head to in front of your face. I have literally had many experiences where I jump awake after a nightmare of watching a spider and having it suddenly drop from its bed in front of my face. And worse than that, they don't have wings. If you're going to give a bug superpowers, I vote give them wings. I believe I can fly. So that when they land on you, you can blow on them and they will just fly off. No, with a spider, if it gets on you, that means in order to get it off, it has to crawl all the way down or drop from its web, which would be attached to you. And even though I want to squish it so badly, I'm too scared to get close because I think it will just scurry up my arm and then have fun making webs and swinging from my elbow to my shoulder. Skeletons. Alright, I realize that this is an irrational fear now, but as a little girl, I would shudder under my blankets every night, thinking that skeletons might come into my room. That was the scariest thing my mind could make up. My imagination went wild thinking about bony, decaying figures hiding in my closet or under my bed. I would hide under my covers from them and breathe really quietly so that they couldn't hear me. Until one day, somebody told me that I have one inside of my body. Yep, had to get over that one real quick. Garlic. No, I am not a vampire, but I am a girl who always had to help her dad cook in the kitchen. Don't get me wrong, I love making stir fry. But I always remember how my eyes widened in fear when I'd see my dad get out the chopped garlic in a big spoon. I knew exactly what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to drop it on the scalding hot frying pan, and that stuff pops all over the place. He just could never see how frying garlic could be so terrifying. But I felt like I needed to go in there with a suit of armor to protect all those little menacing pieces of garlic from popping out of the frying pan and burning my arms. Or my roommate's bed. I keep on falling. Sounds harmless, but let me tell you. Sleeping under a bunk bed and looking straight up at a beam that looks three-fourths of the way broken and that it could snap and crush you flat at any moment keeps me awake at night. 
any creak of the bed frame startles my slumbering mind into a panic that these might just be the last moments of my life. You know, I've contemplated keeping my will under my pillow just in case. When you come crash Yellow lights. You know, yellow used to be a sign of brightness and happiness to me until I got on the road. Now it's a sign of stress, terror, and possibly my last moments on Earth. Oh yes, these are the most terrifying of all. Do you understand the stress that comes along with frantically trying to find your way to your next destination only to be interrupted with a blaring yellow light that means you have to make a split-second decision that could mean life or death? Is it going to be yellow long enough that I can make it through unscathed? Do I slam on the brakes or hit the gas pedal and risk being crushed by the opposite traffic, anxious to speed across the intersection at any moment? I got this. I'm going through. Every yellow light seems to be screaming at me. Any last words? I told you my fears are completely healthy and rational. I think it helps to get it out there in the open. But anyway, now you can understand how it doesn't really come as a surprise to any people that I hate haunted houses and have never seen a scary movie. So I vote we start a movement to stop celebrating fear and creepy stuff. Bring on the baby pumpkins and paper cutouts. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the third and final hour of the show. We are here in place of Matt this week, who is still in beautiful Costa Rica. He'll be there through to the end of this week. But he'll be back on Monday, Halloween, which uh, we'll look forward to because I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about on Halloween. Speaking of Halloween, did you know that today is Pumpkin Day? Pumpkin Day, a day where we celebrate a, a, a word that has gone through some changes, not surprisingly. But uh, we were actually the ones here in America to coin the word pumpkin. So go out and celebrate with a piece of pumpkin pie, a pumpkin pie blizzard, or stick your hands in a a messy pumpkin and make a jack-o'-lantern. Today is also Howl at the Moon Day. Terry, are we going to hear a howl from you? No. <laughs> All right. Sean, any taker? Are you a taker on the howl? Um, unless I'm watching Teen Wolf. Sorry. No. <sighs> I guess I'll have to take it into my own hands. Oh! And I think officially that means that Sadie had the best howl of the day. So let's hear it for Sadie Nielsen. We'll be talking, well, we probably, in all honesty, won't be talking more about those days. But we will be having some more fun on the show, uh, including here in a few minutes, Sean O'Neill and I will be spending a couple of minutes talking about the next pick. Oh! Hopefully he didn't give anything away there. <laughs> uh, but the next pick for the 12 days of Halloween movies, and uh, with Halloween quickly approaching, you still have time to watch a scary movie, whether it's family-friendly or genuinely scary. But uh, we'll get to that here in a minute. Plus, 
Justin Bieber, it looks like, is in trouble again. That boy is always, always in trouble, it seems. Uh, that's Mr. Timberlake. Timberlake. He, oh. just, he doesn't get in trouble. <laughs> no wonder. Okay. Yeah, when you when I mentioned that in the break and you're like, oh, he's always in trouble. Like, oh, so wait a minute. Is Justin Bieber from Canada? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So that, okay. So we were talking about two different people. Yeah. Well, Justin Timberlake, all right. I guess we can forgive him a little more than Justin Bieber, but uh, we'll get to we'll get to that in a minute. But first, we need to turn it over to our howler of the day, Sadie Nielsen, to tell us a little bit more about what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie. The latest round of emails from the Clinton camp published by WikiLeaks indicates President Obama might not have found out about Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State at the same time everybody else did. Shortly after Obama told CBS in March 2015 that he learned about the server through news reports, Clinton's former chief of staff at the State Department, Cheryl Mills, sent this email to the Clinton campaign chair John Podesta about the email on Clinton's server from the president from a non-governmental server. Federal officials say they believe a non-state actor orchestrated the cyber attack last Friday that brought down several, several websites, including Netflix and Twitter. National Intelligence Director James Clapper said authorities are still gathering information about the event, but that pre- preliminary indications lead them to believe it was an individual or a group not associated with another government. Still, the possibility hasn't been completely ruled out. The New World hackers claimed responsibility for the attack, but that claim has not yet been confirmed. A federal judge on Tuesday authorized a $14.7 billion U.S. settlement in the Volkswagen emissions scandal. The deal approved by the U.S. District Court in San Francisco comes nearly a year after Volkswagen admitted it had installed software in nearly 11 million vehicles with the intent of dodging federal admissions standards. As a result of the settlement with consumers, California regulators, and the U.S. government, nearly 475,000 Volkswagen's owners will now have the option of either selling back Back their car or receiving a free fix plus compensation. The company still faces criminal probes by both the U.S. Department of, of Justice and German prosecutors with additional fines and criminal charges possibly down the line. And finally. Yes. Uh, I love that song, uh, Message in a Bottle. Who's that by? Christina um, Aguilera. And, no, oh, no. That's Genie in a Bottle. No, I think... <laughs> Message in a Bottle is done by the police. Thank you. The police. Yes. Yes. Great song. Um, I have a story about a message in a bottle. Um, A man discovered a message in a bottle cast out to sea by a New Hampshire family while on a Caribbean vacation. Clint Buffington discovered the ancient looking message while on vacation in the Turks and Caicos. I found this Coke bottle half buried buried in the sand. It looked like it had been there since the beginning of time. Buffington found the words return and beachcomber on the note, which eventually led him to the beachcomber motel in Hampton, New New Hampshire, and to Paula Pierce, whose father wrote the message about 50 years prior. It's incredible. He wrote this. His hands were on this, Pierce said. He's been gone 26 years, and he put this in a bottle, and it survived. Pierce's father's joke message managed to travel thousands of miles before being discovered by Buffington decades later. And he also said whoever finds it should be offered $150. Wow. $150. bucks. I don't think Pierce wanted to offer $150, though. But she was very grateful, however... I heard she did. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there you go. You know, I think I'd I'd still rather have a genie in a bottle. <laughs> genie in a bottle. Because then I could wish for something worth much more than $150. That's true. But he made someone's day. 
That's the whole point. You know, I I did something super cheesy when I was in high school. I took the girl took a girl to the beach. And I had pre-buried a message in a bottle that said, will you be my girlfriend? Oh, my goodness. And then I was like, goodness. what's that under the sand? And it was probably one of the cheesiest things I've ever done. And not a very good decision, I don't think. Wow, that's that's great. Did she say yes? Yeah, but, you know, like most high school relationships, she it like, didn't really last. Was she like, oh, yeah. I or was she like, probably, yes. I think she probably <laughs> thought I was an idiot for doing that. Uh, yeah. That's great. Hey, creativity for the win. <sighs> Thanks, Sadie. You're welcome. Sadie, our howling champion of the day. Hope you have a good day, Sadie. You too. Okay. So we teased this before we tossed it over to Sadie, but I'm really interested in hearing about this story with not Justin Bieber, but Justin Timberlake. So there's been a... I imagine it's because we all have phones and because people love taking selfies and documenting their entire day and sharing those out, no matter how annoying I think they are. Uh, So Justin Timberlake lives in California, right? But he has a huge house in Nashville and he lives there in Nashville, Memphis, Tennessee sort of area. So he flew back to his home district to vote. He got there and he figured, I'll take a picture and his millions of followers, he could say, hey, get out and vote. You know, there's, it's, it, he could actually influence people because lots of people will see this post. He took a picture, put it out there, and instantly it became a concern because in Tennessee, taking a ballot selfie, they're called. So he's standing in the ballot booth, right? And he right. turned around, he showed his card or whatever he was doing, and here I'm voting. And doing that, taking a picture and posting it is a, uh, what is a misdemeanor. Penalty Ooh. could be 30 days in jail and a $50 fine. They ought to throw the book at him. The uh, communications director from the uh, district attorney's office in that county where he was uh, had said earlier that they were going to investigate. Hmm. And they came back and said that his selfie was – they said it was under review for possibly violating the state election law. He came back and said, no, it's not. We're not going that direction. They put out a statement saying we're thrilled that Justin – Quote, can't stop the feeling, which is the name of his new song, (laughs) when it comes to voting so much that he voted early in person to promote the voting, but please do not take pictures and all this stuff. So they used it as a cautionary tale for everyone else in the state of Tennessee, don't do this. So, I mean, they they, they did it the right way. I don't think you should overreact and arrest people and fine them and all this stuff. Right. But I'm betting there is a movie studio that's going to pay that fine for him. Mm. Sure. Because and he has 50- a movie coming out on November 4th. Well, trolls? Yeah, trolls, sure. Yes. So now, wait a minute. I'm confused. Uh, did he show – in the picture, do you see who he voted for no, or just he's, I'm voting? He's standing, he's standing at the ballot location, okay. the, the ballot box, whatever it's called, and he's holding up whatever the card is they use at that specific precinct to swipe or whatever you do. Because it's different everywhere you it's go. It's just the electronic card that he yes. has? Yes. Well, that's, that's but nothing. you can't take a picture in when you're in that situation I understand under state that. law. I understand. So that's what they're so doing. It's, it's, so, not, it's not a huge thing, though. No. And so Tennessee – Decided, He's not revealing anything. Right. And Tennessee didn't go over overreact to it. Okay. But it's interesting because in every state it's different. Right? Hmm. I mean, wherever you are, it's not it's not like a, a similar law. In Maine, they discourage the practice while others penalize ballot selfies. In Illinois, it's a felony. It'll carry a prison sentence of one to three years. In Pennsylvania, it's a thousand dollar fine and jail time. Right, so it's different there. Uh, it's okay to do it in, uh, let's see here, uh, Utah, Hawaii, North Dakota, Oregon, Rhode Island are among states that allow it, 
It, but as long as again, you vote Republican, not in Tennessee. No, they just you know they're just. But in California, I was because that's you know Timberlake lives in California, and sure. so I looked. Well, what's in California? Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill last month that repeals a 125 year old law barring voters from showing people their marked ballots. The change will take effect nearly two months after the presidential election. But legislative analysts have found no occasion of the ban being enforced. The author of the bill, in fact, has been sharing constituent photos of marked ballots on social media since the law passed. So some people are doing it in California. They're not sure if it's legal. It's kind of in this gray area. And, there, and this list I uh, found on ABC News, it has probably like nine or ten states here where it's unclear what the law is. Other states, it's completely – the problem is if you could get someone – someone pays you money outside. They give you 20 bucks or whatever. You walk in. You vote for the candidate they want you to. You take a picture as proof and then walk outside and show them you did it and they give you the money. Okay, they they so want to avoid any situation like that. That's, of, that's why they're doing are it. Are they also afraid that maybe if somebody that's prominent like just, uh, Justin Timberlake takes a picture, oh, saying I voted for such and such a candidate, are, are they afraid that that's going to sway votes? I, I don't know if they're worried about that, but they are worried about people hmm. being enticed some way and then using a photo as a, a sign of proof and then you collect money right. on the other end. Ah. But for the most part – in like the state of Utah, their law is you can take a picture of your ballot, but nobody else's ballot, just yours. Well, that yeah, that seems that seems about right. Yeah. Okay. Why would you run around the election area taking pictures of everyone else's ballot? But you know, someone may try. Okay. Well, the election is thirteen days away. Anything else that uh, that you wanted to get to real quick, Terry? Sixty-four-year-old New York uh, widow just wanted some fried chicken. Now she's hoping for a family-sized bucket of extra crispy justice. Is the person that wrote this nice. horribly put together. And a side of mashed vindication, as they go. Yes! The New York Post reports that this woman uh, is suing KFC for false advertising after she bought a $20 bucket of chicken last summer, only to find it half full. Her lawsuit states that the commercial for the $20 fill-up shows an, quote, overflowing bucket of chicken. She was, I came home and said, where's the chicken? Which no one says. They always say, where's the beef? But she wants right. she wants a full bucket of chicken, like in the commercials. But instead, when you get the chicken, it's maybe not a full bucket. I'm sure there's a disclaimer on the commercial that says – It needs to says, show like content settled during shipping. Yeah. Yeah, usually like on a box of cereal, it'll say not actual size. Maybe they need to do Does that. Does she complain about the potato chips too? I don't know. The wedges? No, you, when you buy – no no, 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 no. When you buy chips, potato chips in a oh. store and you open the bag – I, th- I thought you meant the potato wedges, which no. are a slice of heaven, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so KFC says the menu clearly states that $20 is for eight pieces of chicken. And, and she there says were eight pieces of chicken. They were small pieces of chicken. Wow. Well, at least she's optimistic because she viewed the, the bucket as half full. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I think she viewed it as half empty. I just thought that, uh, was, a, that was a funny lawsuit of the week. Anyway, it's scary what people complain about these days. And uh, it's scary how good this segue is because we are going to be talking about the next pick for the 12 Days of Halloween movies. And, you know, we decided to change things up a little bit. I was just going to give you one picture, but Sean O'Neill is here, and he's a fan of Alfred Hitchcock movies. Mm -hmm. Terry, how about you? The few I've seen. Yeah, they're all right. All right. (laughs) So... Uh, It is an Alfred Hitchcock movie that is my favorite scary movie of all time. But before I tell you what that is, I want to give you two others that are are also very good. The third being 
Dial M for Murder. Okay. Which is one that I just discovered a couple of years ago, and it's one that if it hasn't been a play in the past, it easily could be because it I'm, all takes I'm sure place. It has. Yeah, it all takes place in an apartment building, and it uh, revolves or it involves a husband who hires a man to get rid of his wife who has been unfaithful to him, and let's just say things don't go according to plan. So. Very, very well done. And and a great example of simple is better. My number two pick, which is very close to my number one pick. It's very tough not to put this one at number one, but it would be Rear Window. Another one where the entire movie takes place in one location. And uh, it really, when you watch it, it's kind of, you think about Jimmy Stewart and what he's doing, watching his neighbors. It's kind of creepy what he's doing when you think about it. He's but a he, stalker. He thinks that he sees something uh, going on across the uh, the alley from where he lives. And so he starts paying a little extra attention to one neighbor in particular whose wife has inexplicably disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic Alfred Hitchcock movie. If you haven't seen it, there probably aren't too many people that haven't seen it or have at least not heard of it. Go check it out. But my number one pick, do you want to give us a little tease there? Ah, that is from the scary shower scene in the movie Psycho, which is not the scariest scene in the movie, in my opinion. Like any good scary movie, the scares come from two people talking in a quiet and maybe sometimes dark room. All the scares come from the monologues where in, in one scene in the movie you see this character played by Anthony Perkins. who He's uh, Norman Bates who owns this old motel that's off the beaten path of this highway that nobody goes to anymore. He's talking to a woman who is convincing him that his overbearing mother maybe should be put in a home of some sort. And that sets him off just a little bit to where his boy-next-door demeanor starts to mm-hmm. change yep. a little bit. Yeah. And it's so creepy. And he's, he's ha- they're having this conversation in a room filled with stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah. stuffed and they're birds. eating sandwiches. Yes. So it's such a quaint <laughs> setting, but it... It very quickly gets a little disturbing. What are your thoughts it's on a, this movie? Psycho is such a creepy film, but it, but but they're, they're they're normal things that are done in such a way that just makes them creepy. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, well, I guess I guess there uh, he gets he, you know he he kills people in this movie mm-hmm. after the shower scene. He puts a lady. Uh, I mean, I hope I'm not. <laughs> I mean, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, come on. He puts a lady in a trunk and then he puts the car. In this like swamp area, and and just watching the car sink into the, it, it's just an amazing shot to as see this car slowly sink into this liquid. As it's he's just, standing oh. there eating a bag of candy. Yes, yes, creepy, <laughs> creepy stuff. You know, and this is another good example of of a movie that you know I don't think movies that are you know gory or just. Fantastic! I don't. I don't think those types of movies are the movies that offer the good mm-hmm. scares. It's the ones that are more grounded in reality, where this st- kind of stuff does and can happen. Yeah, you and know. My favorite shot of the movie is is when there's a policeman who comes to call on Norman Bates, and he and he enters the home and nobody is around, and then he gets attacked, 
and he and he uh, the, you know there's a slash across his face and then all of a sudden he's falling backwards down these stairs but the camera follows him as he's going backwards down the stairs and it's just for me it was an an amazing shot for yeah. the time stylistically they, today they, they would do it cgi i yeah, think of course. but it was oh stylistically technically alfred hitchcock was a genius he loved to plan all of his shots out before he even mm-hmm. did any of them and uh, just a great movie. It broke all sorts of rules uh, as far as horror conventions are concerned. And even his advertising campaign was just genius. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Even though Sean may have spoiled a couple of things, it, hey. it, it, it really won't spoil oh, anything no. for you. It's if, just, you don't, if you don't know the twist at the end. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Creepy, creepy stuff. So go check it out. The movie is Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. When we come back... We're going to be changing the topic completely, uh, but we're going to be talking to uh, Madeline Fougere, who is going to be telling us a little bit more about why your perfect partner doesn't need to be ideal. When we come back, we'll be talking to her. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live happier, healthier lives. We'll be right back. That was a little uh, Selena Gomez coming back into the Matt Townsend Show for you. In our world today, everyone seems to be searching for the best things life has to offer. We grow up dreaming, dreaming about Prince Charming or Supermodels or Stepford Wives, another good scary movie, by the way, and wait for the day when someone like that shows, us, shows up on our doorstep. But there comes a time in life when you realize that no one on earth is as perfect as our ideal imaginary partner, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe idealizing our partners could be more damaging to relationships than we realize, and today, Dr. Madeline Fougere, professor of psychology at Eastern Connecticut, Connecticut State University joins us from Connecticut to discuss her article, Why Your Perfect Partner Doesn't Need to Be Ideal. Dr. Fougere, thank you so much for coming to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, it's really interesting. The very first thing I thought of when I when I read uh, this article is the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, If You Can't, if you can't Be With The One You Love, Then Love The One You're With. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, well, there, there is an element of truth to that in the sense that um, who we're attracted to is very strongly uh, related to physical proximity. So, you know, if, if you're near someone and close to someone on a daily basis, you may actually develop feelings for that person. That's interesting because, you know, um, I remember dating a girl one time that I found her attractive because I was sick and she came over and helped me get better. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah, it didn't last, but uh, she she was a nice girl. So um, what are some of the, this is such an interesting topic, what are some of the common obstacles that, that people have when they're trying to select a marriage partner? You know, it's it's actually hard to quantify what the obstacles are. When we ask people what kinds of traits would sort of be like a deal breaker for them, they tend to say things like dishonesty or disrespect or, you know, really big types of issues. But I I think most people who are looking for a partner and can't find one sort of have the the perceived problem of availability. You know, there just Hmm. aren't enough good, you know, single people um, of the gender that I'm looking for who are out there. So how... How can people that are out there that are 
how can they differentiate between the characteristics um, that are preferences and ones that are that are actually necessary when selecting a partner? Right. You know, I think that when it comes to thinking about the traits that we really want in a romantic partner, I think we probably overthink it. So. Hmm. I, although, you know, when we do ask people, what would you, you know, what are your ideal traits in a romantic partner, they tend to say things like respect and honesty and truthfulness and, and all those things certainly you want in a relationship. But I think that um, in some ways we're also sort of deceiving ourselves about what the most important characteristics are. Hmm. So if I were to ask you what top three traits would you like in an ideal mate, what would you say? Well, I'd obviously say one thing that everybody says is sense of humor. Yes, yes. Um, they would need to be aesthetically pleasing or attractive to me. Right. And I would, I would definitely say kind. Yes, yes. Oh, those are perfect. In fact, I think you probably hit on the top three most common responses. Oh, that's that great, because I was going to ask you that. Yeah. So sense of humor seems to be slightly more important to women than men. Interesting. Hmm. Um, and then physical attractiveness tends to be slightly more important to men than women. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, for most people, for the most part, will say they want someone who's nice and kind and, um, you know, good sense of humor and, and attractive, at least to them, if not, you know, attractive to everyone, at least attractive to them. Sure, sure. In the article, you, you mentioned that some of our preferences might not be conscious. Can yes. you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is so interesting. Uh, researchers in evolutionary psychology have found a variety of preferences that we don't even necessarily know we have, and but we seem to have them for really good reasons. Like, we prefer partners with a symmetrical face, which you've probably never thought about that before, right? Does, no. <laughs> does your partner, do they have a, a, the left side of their face and the right side of their face, do they pretty much look the same? So we have that unconscious preference for symmetry. And the reason we have it is that people who have symmetrical faces um, probably have better genes. They're probably better able to sort of ward off um, diseases and pathogens that might impact the way they develop. Um, and then we also have this unconscious preference for scent. Um, so, you know, to me or you, we just you know, smell a partner and say, this person smells good or that person doesn't smell good. Well, it turns out our preferences are linked to the immune genes that that partner might have. So if I, you know, smell my husband and say, gosh, you smell great, um, what that might mean is that he has different immune genes than I do. And so our children will benefit from having, you know, two different sets of immune genes rather than similar immune genes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you, you brought up the, the symmetry of, of someone's face. Mm -hmm. um, my wife, her her eye color is different. So one eye color is different from the other. And I that's one of my favorite features about her. Yeah, yeah. So symmetry more than being related to color is probably related to shape. So sure. her eyes are probably, you know, roughly the same size or, you know, roughly equally spaced. Um, from the center of her face. Um, but yeah, that's a really cool feature. Sometimes finding something that's a little bit unique and different about a person can make that person really attractive too. You know, I don't really notice the, the symmetry because I just can't get past the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's not a thing we really notice unless you see a person who's very asymmetrical and then you would probably think that person was not very attractive. 
Yeah. And I wish my wife was listening right now. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to tell her later. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, obviously there are many different places where people meet up and, you know, whether it's a a bar or whether it's a blind date or a church event, a lot of people also meet online. And your article uh, talks about trait profiles and how uh, trait profiles for online dating might not be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. So um, the researchers who looked into this area basically just look at, you know, what kind of, of profile descriptions do people write up? And then, you know, can you really tell what that person is going to be like in real life based on those profile descriptions? And you pretty much can't, you know. (laughs) So I could write anything in my profile description. I I could deliberately try to present myself positively. I could, you know, try to um, come up with the traits that I think that people would be most likely to like. People have a good sense of what's socially desirable. They have a good sense of what would be attractive to other people. Um, but whether they actually embody those traits is another question. And, and you can't really tell that until you meet them in person. Right. They can put up a, a photoshopped photo or right. or even a photo that's of somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is really interesting. We actually can tell a lot about a person's personality from a still photograph. Um, so we could tell, you know, probably whether they're extroverted. Um, obviously, you can tell whether they're attractive to you or not. Um, you might even be able to tell a little bit about whether they're kind of like hardworking or conscientious just by looking at a still photograph. But yes, people do sort of doctor their photographs or <laughs> that would be terrible to put up a photo of someone else. But yeah, then you just don't know, you know, what that person's going to be like until you meet them in person. Right, right. So uh, there's a, a really big question that I want to ask you when we come back to, uh, from the break here, but we will take a break right now. We are speaking with Dr. Madeline Fougier, who uh, is oh, has just done some really interesting research on your ideal partner and how that doesn't need to be a perfect partner. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We'll take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in beautiful Costa Rica. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Madeline uh, Fougere, who is a professor of psychology at Eastern Connecticut State University, and she's the author of a uh, recent book, The Social Psychology of Attraction and Romantic Relationships. And we're having a very interesting conversation with her right now about that very thing. Dr. Fougere, thank you again for being on the program. Oh, yes. Thanks for having me. So before we went to break, you talked about how our perceptions of people can change after we've met them face to face. We mentioned um, some of the uh, deceitfulness that goes on uh, on online dating sites. So what are some of our how can those perceptions of a person change after meeting them in person? Yeah. Well, I think this is really interesting, actually. When we meet other people online, we tend to like them better than if we meet them in person first. And what researchers think is going on there is that when we meet people online, 
we don't get a complete picture of their full personality. And so what we do is we fill in the missing information with positive information or um, information that might make them seem more like us. And so when we meet in person, you know, sometimes we find out that, that we filled in that information inappropriately, right? So we, sometimes we find out they're not like us or they're not entirely positive. So uh, it's kind of interesting how your perceptions can change when you meet someone online versus in person. Yeah. You know, just reading an online profile isn't going to give you a good idea as to how does that person treat their parents or, you know, how do they act when they're playing sports? Absolutely. Yeah. So this... uh, I'm going to kind of get into something a little heavy here in a second. I hope it's okay. But um, can there be both positives and negatives to idealizing your partner? Yeah, I think there can be. So first of all, we do tend to idealize our partners, which is probably probably more good than bad, right? So if you're going to be in a relationship with a person, you want to have a positive view of that person. Um, So we tend to think they're more attractive than they actually are, and we tend to sort of, you know, emphasize their positive personality characteristics and kind of overlook some of the negative ones. Um, So, I mean, mostly I think that's a good thing. And the other really good thing about perceiving your partner positively is that sometimes you can sort of bring about a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I were to expect you to be a really nice person, I might treat you nicely, and that might, you know, make you respond nicely in return. And, you know, that would sort of bring about that behavior that I was expecting of you. So similarly with a partner, you know, if you um, think that they're very respectful and kind and honest, if you treat them in that way, they're going to respond with that type of behavior. So does that cause for a, a bigger downfall if there is a disappointment that does show up? That's a good question, yeah. We do know with regard to physical attractiveness that when people do start to become aware of a mismatch, so, you know, I thought you were attractive, but now after we've been together for a while, I sort of notice that you're not as attractive as I thought you were. Um, We do see that those relationships tend to be less stable. So people start to think about finding another partner. They start to think about breaking up. So if if there is a point where your idealization of a partner breaks down then yeah it's going to it's going to probably signal some hard times for that relationship yeah yeah um and as far as you know the negative effects of idealizing uh your partner mm-hmm. how how much are we influenced by the media as far as well i i want this physical trait or i want this uh this other attribute how much are we influenced by the media Yeah, quite a bit. So there's a phenomenon that we call the contrast effect, where basically it just means that if you're evaluating a partner, you don't really do so in a vacuum. So you might compare that person to friends of yours or a celebrity. Um, And so what we do see is that when people, you know, do see lots of images of beautiful women, for example, they see an average attractive real woman as less attractive in contrast or in comparison. So that's not really, um, you know, a bad thing about idealizing your partner, but I guess it's a bad thing about idealizing physical attractiveness, for example. Yeah, and then I guess to an extreme point, um, you could bring up the the argument of of pornography and how that affects 
um, relationships in such a, a major way, really, because there is that expectation of, oh, well, my wife should look like like this actress or, right. you know, should act this way. So yeah. it, it could be dangerous, too. You know what's really interesting, though, is is we do see the opposite effect that happens where if you're in a committed relationship and you love your wife, um, we actually sometimes see other people as less attractive. And this, again, could be like an unconscious process. Mm. But, uh, you know, just because of the fact that you're in that committed relationship and you love your wife, it can sort of cause your brain even to perceive other attractive people as less attractive because you want to, you know, maintain your relationship. That's really interesting, too. Um, So you you mentioned a little bit about um, how we have a different perception of somebody after we've met them in person. And, you know, I am a a beneficiary of this mindset because I think had my wife not given me a chance by going on a first date with me, you know, we may not have been together. I think both of us on both ends, we kind of surprised each other. And, you know, I had this one idea of who I thought she was beforehand, and I think she had an idea of who she thought I was. Would you suggest that? Uh, would you ad- be an advocate for that, basically, of the first date and, and giving that first chance, even if your initial uh, response to that person may not be uh, your ideal person? Absolutely. In fact, I had a similar thing with my husband, where the first time we met, I thought I thought he was quiet, and I thought, oh, you know, he's not my type. And and then we ended up going, you know, with friends on a trip together. And I got to know him better, and I said, oh, you know, he really is a great person. And I think that sometimes, especially if, if you're thinking that physically a person isn't your um, ideal, sometimes if you give them a chance, you can find out that they really are a wonderful companion. And, and if it doesn't work out romantically, you know, maybe it's going to be a friendship for you, which is also a really great type of relationship to have. Yeah, yeah. Ken, is it possible to make our partner our ideal partner? I don't think so. (laughs) Really? No. Um, So that makes me think of a a song from an old musical. I think it's maybe Guys and Dolls where they say, you know, marry the man today and change his ways tomorrow. And and I think that pretty much never works. I I think that a, a person pretty much is who they are and you can't really change them very much. Um, So... But what you can do is sort of change your ideals. And we actually do do this. We, we see this in, in um, social psychological research that let's say your partner is very kind but not very generous. Um, so over time, you'll think that being kind is more important than being generous. So we sort of adjust our preferences to match the positive traits that, that our partners really do have. Wow. So, yeah, it can be dangerous going into a relationship thinking that you're going to change the person and that later on, you know, uh, they'll be they'll be close, more closely matched to what your ideals are. Uh, So just just in closing here, other than uh, changing that mindset, what's what's a quick piece of advice you could give those that are seeking a marriage partner? Okay. I, I think really good advice is to, to trust your gut. Um, so if, you have, if you've got good feelings about a person, 
then go with it. Um, and, and really just, you know, to give them time and get to know them. Um, in the research, basically, it shows that uh, people who do spend a little bit more, more time getting to know each other before they get married are more likely to have a successful marriage. Wow. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Fougere. We really appreciate your, your research and your efforts and uh, really just educating people and uh, helping them to change their mindset so that uh, they don't hold out for somebody that is never going to come along. Because as we know, there is no perfect person out there for you. But uh, remember, in the words of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, if you can't be with the one that you love, honey, love the one you're with. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are wrapping up the third and final hour of the show. And uh, as we like to do every day, we take things over to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. And today we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Fantastic. Sporting. When you you introduce us as good brethren, it makes us sound all official. (laughs) Well, that's how we like to do things here on the show. Hey, uh, this is not as official, but we have not been able to get a good wolf howl from anybody here at the show, and today is Howl at the Moon Day. Can Mm. we hear what that sounds like from the two of you? Jerem? Uh, let me pull up a clip. Hold on. Oh, oh come, on. come on. You want me to do it? You got to commit to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? Wow. Okay. So you, you tied with our student producer for the best howler of the day. Just pick one. <laughs> you know, that's uh, it, this goes along a little bit with what's coming up here on Monday, which is Halloween, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our other producers did a story on irrational fears. Do either of you have any irrational fears? Irrational? Well, what qualifies as an irrational fear? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that she mentioned was she was afraid of her roommate's bed. Okay, that, that's pretty yeah, irrational. That's pretty weird. <laughs> I'll tell you a couple fears I have, and you tell me if they're irrational. Okay. Uh, my hand in the disposal. Oh, man. Ooh. Like, if someone's like, hey, can you get that out of there? I'm like, uh, that'd be a heck to the no. <laughs> Even if it's turned off? Even if it's turned off, because someone you never accidentally know. flips the switch, you think you're turning on the light, see ya. Uh, also, feet under the lawnmower. Ooh. So basically, any ah! anything. I'm not like I'm not like waking up in the middle of the night about that. But when I'm near those objects, I'm aware. Okay, so anything where limbs or digits can be chopped off is so a like is a real fear for you. Yeah, weird saws in general. So you okay. probably don't like the movie Saw. Then I don't really watch scary movies. <laughs> I don't I don't seek that adrenaline. Okay, so what else? What other irrational fears? We. Fear. I'm, try, I'm trying to think. The like fear of being sub 500. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not actually afraid of that. They're not going to be sub 500. You know, for me, anytime I I go to eat something and it tastes different than what I thought it was going to taste like, is a fear of mine. Hmm. Is that irrational? I don't. I no, don't. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> You know, yeah, like you, see, that, those seem pretty normal. That's rational. You bite into a, you know, a soft hamburger, 
and you end up biting into it tastes like something that is stale and you know tastes rotten like like the fear that some you're going to drink something and you thought it was milk but it's actually sprite yes or something you're like ah oh! yes cuz your expectations are shattered oh well thank you for sharing it. you know and that's a big step in getting over your fears is is sharing them talk it out so we appreciate you, you sharing know, I, those I thought, with us i thought of one okay i just thought of one all right like, this was when i was a little kid like if I like scratched a mole when I was a little kid, I was convinced I was going to get cancer. Really? Did your parents no. tell you that to to keep you from stopping? I, I, no, I just think it was all that big health craze where it's like, well, you got to be careful with moles. Like I remember in my health class in elementary school, they talked about that, and one time I like scratched a mole and it started to bleed, and I was like, I'm going to die of cancer. Oh. I'm going to die of cancer. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, thank you for uh, for at least talking about those fears. <laughs> I wouldn't say face them by going and trying to scratch off a mole or anything like that, but okay. uh, thank you for sharing, gentlemen. Uh, so, what are you going to be talking about on the program today? Oh, let's see. Uh, the BYU basketball tip-off is tonight. So, yes. first. Real look of sorts at BYU basketball, the blue and white scrimmage. Jeremy and I will have the call tonight on the BYU TV app and on BYUtv.org. But we're discussing expectations because that's what we do. Long-distance expectations. What do we anticipate BYU basketball will do this season? Where they will end up in terms of win total, all of that good stuff. Uh, because this is the first look that we have at them tonight. So on October 26, why not predict what's going to happen in March, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Terry Nash of the uh, assistant coach, um, one of the assistant coaches, he runs the offense. He'll join us. And then the first real game on Saturday night, correct? That is an uh, exhibition. Oh, it's an exhibition like game. Two That's exhibition right. games. Yeah, November be against 14th. another team. Yeah, November 14th. November 14th <sighs> against Princeton. Yes. <laughs> the Tigers will be in Provo. Thank you for giving us your best Thurston Howell the third. But we buried the lead. Steve Young's on the show. Oh yeah, Ooh. Steve Young is on the show. Yeah, he has a new book out. Uh, my, uh, QB, my life behind the spiral, uh, and it's it's fantastic. He's going to talk about that among other stories. He'll weigh in on Kyle Van Noy to the Patriots, uh, BYU football this season. Kalani Sitake, and of course. Some fun uh, stories from his youth. And, and his, who's better, who has a better impersonation of Ty Detmer, me or Steve Young? You'll find out. Ooh, man, what a great tease on every one of those points. What a great show. Man. So that's coming up here just in a few minutes. And uh, something else to scare you guys a little bit. Today oh, is also Pumpkin Day. Okay, that doesn't scare me at Smashing all. Smashing Pumpkins. Spencer and I went to Smashing Pumpkins together that in we did. April. Really? Wow, was it that so, long Late March. Is, is it just a name, or do they actually smash pumpkins at their concerts? They did not. Billy Corrigan did not smash any, but he smashed, he melted faces. Mm, he was awesome. But he didn't. He shredded on guitar. Well, Spencer and Jerem, thank you, as always, for the great work that you do there and for the entertaining few minutes that we get to spend with you. Knock them dead and have a great show. You got it. All right. Howl on, brother. Oh! <laughs> how long or how long? <laughs> you can talk about that on your show. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Wow, love those guys. Man, that is a lot of exciting programming coming up on their show and a lot to get excited about with BYU basketball starting. I'm a little disappointed, I've got to say, that the first real game isn't until November 14th, but I guess in the words of the comedian Stephen Wright, you can't have everything where would you put it? you got to warm up somehow. <laughs>
That is so true. A quick story here before we wrap things up with the hero story. A Perth man who had his car broken into last week has sent a very unusual message to the thief. Thank you. Wow. On Saturday, Tom Drury's uncle notified him the back door of his 1994 Mazda had not been locked properly when it had been parked on their Morley front lawn. Upon investigating, Mr. Drury, which is a hard word to say, like rural, found his car had been broken into and the thief had removed the stereo from the front dock. While many people would be frustrated and upset by a missing sound system, Mr. Drury said the news wasn't all that bad. The stereo was broken. It didn't pick up radio stations and didn't read any discs. It was just rubbish, he said. I had tried removing it not long before, but I gave up out of frustration. To get it out, I needed a special tool I didn't have. So when I saw that the stereo was removed, I couldn't help but laugh. And that wasn't all. Mr. Drury then noticed a $10 note and a number of gold coins had been left on the front driver's seat. When I went to inspect it myself, I discovered $22.10, he said. If I could say one thing to the thief, it would be thank you. Wow. So even some of the criminals out there are are doing some good in the world, whether they know it or not. But uh, let's get to a story about a real hero and not somebody who was unwittingly a hero. Danielle Encontro, who is six months pregnant, lost consciousness in her Irvine, California home Wednesday afternoon. Encontro suffers from two conditions that can cause her to pass out. I don't remember much. I remember feeling dizzy, she told reporters. Her six-year-old son, Sawyer, the only person in the house, clicked 911 and started calling. Paramedics rushed Encontro to the hospital and she regained consciousness along the way. She spent hours inside the emergency room at a hospital but it could have been much worse. I had fallen on my stomach, so I had fallen on my stomach, so that was the main concern, Encontro said. When she learned what Sawyer had done, she said she wasn't surprised he knew what to do. He's a very responsible kid, she added. Wow, so a six-year-old can be a hero just by simply dialing 911, even in a scary situation like that where a, a six-month pregnant mother had fallen on her stomach. So good work, Sawyer. Keep up the good work and uh, look to be a hero throughout your lives. And just a good reminder to people that uh, we can be heroes every day by the things that we say, by the, the small and simple things that we do. So look for those opportunities because they are out there. And you can be a hero to somebody who is in, in need, whether it be small or whether it be in a, uh, a bigger circumstance here, like somebody who needs to go to the hospital. So again, look for those opportunities and uh, be a hero to those around you. Well, that's going to be it for the third and final hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow with some more great content that uh, hopefully will help you live better, healthier, and, and just more heroic lives all around. This is Jeff Simpson signing off for today. Matt Townsend won't be back until next week, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun in the meantime. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.